This week, Jared DeMott, Principal Security Engineering Manager at Microsoft, joins us to share his journey in security and discuss managing bug bounty programs at scale. In the security news, lower projects are popular. Simple checksums are not enough. WinRAR, shareware, or native OS capability. ATM software is vulnerable. Attackers could learn from security researchers, but like, let's hope they don't. No filter and behavior by design. Apple versus a security researcher. There are no winners. Sneaky NPM packages, faster NMAP scans, Kalyan phones, and even more of them now. More on law drivers comparing security benchmarks to the real world, tunnel crack, and why VPNs are overhyped. Ubuntu has lost its mind, and there's a Python in the sheets. All that and more on this episode of Paul's Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production for security professionals by security professionals. Please visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to all the shows on our network. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. SOC analysts are often overworked and underappreciated. In fact, many consider leaving their jobs or changing careers altogether. Devo is hosting the third annual SOC Analyst Appreciation Day to pay some long overdue kudos to analysts and encourage organizations to improve their job satisfaction and mental well-being. Join Devo and other cybersecurity industry professionals on October 18th for sessions and panels focused on de-stressing, SOC career development, and more. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Devo to register. And welcome to the show. But first, let me introduce you to a man who drinks his beer out of a filthy glass, Mr. Paul Asadori. Welcome, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly, coming to you in super low definition compliments of Darth Vader himself. It's episode number 796, being recorded on August 23rd, 2023, right here in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. To my left... Mr. Larry Pesce is in studio with me. Larry, welcome. Ooh, it's good to be back again this week. Hopefully we can make this a, a running yeah. thing, right? I know, right? It's awesome. <laughs> it's good having you here, man. Mr. Jeff Mann reporting to you live from the cabin. Jeff, welcome. Good to be here, and I'm very relaxed because it's a beautiful day. Low humidity has that hint of, ooh, falls just around the yes, corner. Yes, yes. So I'm, I, I'm enjoy and I apologize. The uh, tree frogs are very active. Uh, no need to adjust the settings on your TV. <laughs> it, it, it's it's the way it is. That's, I think it adds a nice ambiance, to be honest with you. Uh, make sure you attend InfoSec World 2023 at Disney's Coronado Springs Resort, September 23rd through the 28th. Listeners receive a 20% discount when registering using the code ISW-SECWEEK20 at securityweekly.com forward slash InfoSecWorld2023. If you want all links, all the links to my social media, you can visit my website, securitypodcaster.com. I make daily posts to Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, LinkedIn, and Facebook featuring primarily funny tech memes, don't take them too seriously, clips from the show, and other informative and entertaining posts. Jared DeMott cut his cyber teeth at the NSA, gaining important vulnerability research skills. After sharing AppSec knowledge by teaching at various conferences and universities, Jared was a leader in successful malware monitoring and pen test startups. Jared today manages a team in Microsoft protecting products and customers 
by turning bug bounty reports into fixes for cloud services. Jared, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Hey, it's good to, I, I feel like um, we've met before at conferences, perhaps in, in passing, and I'm delighted to have you on the show. You have a very long history in uh, information security, Jared. So I want to start by asking you how you got your start in information security. Yeah, absolutely. And, and first, it's kind of funny because I love podcasts. I listen to a lot. But I one strange fact about me is I listen to them on 1.5. So mm. here I am, you know, listening to it real time. And it's, it it's slow. Uh, throwing me off a little bit. If <laughs> <laughs> you want to, we can try to speed up everything that we that's said. That's right. <laughs> yeah, y'all just talk really fast. <laughs> no, uh, that's great. Yeah, I've been in cyber 23 years. And, uh, you know, I started at the NSA, which was a great way to kind of get into the field back in 2000 before cyber was a word before 9-11 before snowden you know before a lot of that stuff kind of changed the face of what we're doing certainly before cloud and ai and the things that we're you know working with now so um yeah i've been a part of you know probably most angles of the industry from you know pen testing to malware analysis to security research and vulnerability hunting and exploit development and uh, both on the, you know, kind of IC, what we call individual contributor side and, and the management and uh, small business ownership side. And then I uh, sold my business and now I'm at Microsoft. And it's really a, a great opportunity to be part of what we're doing to push the industry forward. I interviewed many people who have worked for the NSA uh, before, uh, Jared. Is there anything else you can share about what, what you did at NSA or where you worked or ex any experiences that you're at liberty to share? And Please, I understand if you say no comment. I'm I'm fine with that too. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, one thing I would say is that it was a really great experience. It's a very, at least at that time, admittedly, this was like, you know, from the sort of 2000, 2005 type timeframe. So probably okay. lots changed there, you know, since yep. I've been there. My, my, my comments may or may not be particularly relevant anymore, but it was fun living in the, the DC area in the Fort Meade area. My wife and I moved there before we had kids and now our kids are almost uh, grown. So, you know, lots, lots transpired since then, but <clears throat> I liked the blend of mission focus with kind of an academic environment, if that makes sense. There were mm -hmm. like a lot of times they would bring in like Friday speakers and, but there was also like, you were working with military people and like, it was very interesting. I would say the work environment's different than probably any other place I've been before or since. Mm. So you weren't in ops. <laughs> Were you an IA? Um, I did a little bit of both. Yeah, I was I was involved in a number of things when I was there, and I, I liked every side of that. Whether it was yeah, kind of more from a protection angle or more from an intelligence angle. Uh, coming coming out of uh, NSA, Jared was that. Did you leave and go, I'm just going to go, you know, find something new to explore? Or did you like you have an opportunity that presented itself and you were like, this this is where I want to go? Yeah, one of the things that was interesting is obviously one thing that was great there being there, too, is, you know, the opportunity to get a master's degree. And it's, uh, and we had our first child and we were kind of like, eh, I don't know if we want to raise our kids in the D.C. here. It's kind of expensive at that mm -hmm. time and kind of busy. And um, my wife and I had both grown up in Michigan, so we wanted to get back to Michigan. So I actually found an opportunity still working in the same vein, but for a defense contractor mm -hmm. where they were able to carve off a piece for me that I could do in an unclassified manner from home, actually, which was kind of cool. So I've been doing the work from home thing since 2005, more or less, um, you know, and that's kind of before I guess most people, you know, were doing it. So that it's been kind of a, a long run on that. Nice. nice. Uh, Michigan or Michigan State? 
I did a PhD for Michigan State, and uh, my older son's actually going to be in his uh, junior year at Michigan State studying data science, and he's in the marching band too and stuff. So yeah, we're kind of a green, green, go green, go white kind of a place. Gotcha. And then where where did you end up from there? Just give us a little little chronicle of uh, you got you got your PhD at, at Michigan State. Is that is that true? Yeah. So I later did that once we moved back to Michigan. So this was like, took me a while to you know. I was, I was working full time, mm-hmm. you know, had, had young kids. And so I think from 2006 to 2012, I worked on my PhD there. And, uh, during that time frame, I was mostly, uh, either with a defense contractor. I was also teaching both at university and at different angles. Like I taught at Black Hat for a long time and I made classes on Pluralsight and other, uh, various conferences and things. And, that was kind of so i kind of cut up my career into like i guess four chunks really there's sort of like defense contract academic and then i got into startups i worked for a small startup called bromium after that i don't know if you remember that i do yeah they were kind of early in the endpoint security when when crowdstrike and carbon black and then we're just getting going and their technology was good but it was very protective it didn't have the detective angle that the others had so i think they kind of really missed a market opportunity so that's why they're not the household name that CrowdStrike is now, I think, at least one of the reasons. Mm. Um, yeah, that was fun. Then I got involved in other startups, um, and then I did my own little consulting company and uh, eventually sold that. And I was like, where do I go from here? Because it's kind of a weird, jarring experience when you're, I don't, some people tell me I don't look that old, but I'm 45, and I kind of had, I'd done, I felt like life had kind of dragged me along, if that makes sense, where you know, I had a job and then had an opportunity to get a master's degree and then we had kids and marriage and all this. Like, it just felt like every next step was like, oh, the next step is obvious. There's like another rung on the ladder of just get a better job or get another degree or start a business or write a book or get a PhD. And then I suddenly hit this place where I didn't know what to do. I was really like, for the first time, I felt like I was kind of lost after that. I was like, not really a midlife crisis, but like, where do you go after having done all that and you've sold your business and you kind of took a month off basically and was like, I don't know what to do now. And I ended up in big tech and actually that's been really good because that was one area I hadn't worked in and was really always curious about working at Amazon or Microsoft or one of these type of companies. And uh, it's, it's definitely different, I would say, than consulting or government or academic or small business startup. It's definitely got its own vibe that's kind of unique. So I've really enjoyed the opportunity. So uh, why did you choose Microsoft? Or did Microsoft choose you? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 They just, I had no choice. They brainwashed me and sucked me in. So <laughs> I, I would think that having been a prior researcher, you know, I was, I, I was on the other side. It was very interesting being at uh, Black Hat and DEF CON this year, you know, kind of uh, monitoring talks in, in the past. I was kind of, you know, there was, I was watching one guy young uh, person in particular 25 years old and they were giving a talk kind of talking about a vulnerability that they had found in a microsoft product and how they had you know disclosed it coordinatedly nice and and got a bounty and everything and it was a great experience for them but i just remember being that 25 year old researcher on stage kind of talking about the big company and then in the audience i was like the 45 year old man watching the talk from the company perspective you know making yeah, sure everything yeah. sounded good and and <laughs> it was a very different experience and i i uh it was it was fun it was kind of like closing the circle if that makes sense yeah yeah no it it totally does and i think um everyone's got a different perspective, right? Um, and we've talked on the show for 18 years about vulnerability disclosure has been a thread and a topic. And we've 
I think talked about researchers that maybe we didn't agree with their decisions. And we've talked about big companies. We haven't agreed with some of their decisions, but we also, I think we've done collectively on this show, a great job of seeing both sides of it. Right. And I think we've been more than fair to, to Microsoft and security researchers recently because this disclosure process is still, it, it can, has the high potential to create friction. Right. And that's why in my intro, I think I saw you kind of react to this, right? Where it happened to be with Apple had a disagreement in a security researcher had a disagreement. And after I had kind of read really just one side, right, of it from this person's blog, I was like, yeah, but nobody wins. Like Apple didn't win. The security researcher didn't get a bug bounty. Um, so it's debatable whether or not that person won or not. But I'm like, Apple's customers didn't win either. And I just want scenarios where everybody wins. I think, Jared, that's part of your role today at Microsoft is essentially assuring that everyone wins. Yeah, I don't know if you remember being in the industry, you know, 20 some years ago, where as a security researcher, if you tried to submit a vulnerability to a company, the first thing you got was a letter back from their yeah. lawyer. And yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, and as an industry, I think we've come so far from that. And I'm so proud to see, you know, how far we've we've come from that. But um, to your point, I do think there's this element of there's always another side to the story or another side to the coin. And sometimes that gets lost, mm. you know, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how much you've uh, played D and D type fantasy games, but there's this term called malign portent, which is basically like a prophecy of doom, you know, and every once in a while you read a, a blog, like the recent tenable blog that came out, or you hear a researcher talk on stage and it seems so, so one-sided. You just think, gosh, I guess the sky's falling. We're all going to die and, you know, everybody's going to get hacked. And and it's just not, there's there's different angles to that that we could get into. So I'm really glad that you're having me on the show to talk about this. And we can kind of talk about some of those different angles if you want. Yeah, I well, I, I mean, you know, you mentioned the tenable thing. And again, I don't want you commenting in any official capacity representing Microsoft. I just want to talk in general, you know, about right. what happened. And I try not to take sides, you know, either. I try to see everyone's, you know, different perspectives. And now, also, I worked for Tenable for quite some time. So did Jeff. I know a meet. Right? Every, everybody thought I worked for Tenable for some time. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah, I, I did the show for so long. And so, I, you know, I read through all of the things. I'm like, well, there's definitely two sides to the story. I'm like, but wow, Tenable seems really up in arms that this vulnerability wasn't fixed. And here's the CEO of a major publicly traded cybersecurity company writing a pretty angry letter, you know, on LinkedIn. And I'm like, but my takeaway from that, Jared, was like, does it take the CEO of a big company to get to get things fixed. And I'm like, that's not how we should approach these kind of problems, right? There's better ways to a solution. Yeah, obviously to your first point, yeah, we're all just having a chat. None of us are representing any company in, a, in an official capacity. So I appreciate you mentioning that. It's just, uh, you know, our, our conversations here. So yeah, that, you know, it's, it is a lot of times there's different angles. Like I said, for example, you know, there may be a need to, uh, I don't want to use the word legacy because sometimes that makes things sound old, but there, there's the the existing customers that you have that have things deployed and working and running. There are, there's always a kind of a thin line or a, a balance between, well, if we rush this fix and we get it wrong, and then we actually take down this, you know, all of US East or something in the cloud, that would be worse than the potential of a mm. embargoed, you know, uh, investigation where a researcher has, you know, committed to this coordinated vulnerability disclosure process and are in the process of, you know, working things through. Yeah. And Jared, um, I call that just balancing operational risk with security risk, 
right? Something we've That's talked right. about for 20 plus years, right? Or more. Yeah. And you see that in every angle. You see that in the need to, you know, fully test drivers or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever kind of technology or thing you're talking about. There's always this need. Now, that doesn't excuse any, you know, thing that could happen on extremes, because to your point, I think you could find extremes on either. And I don't think, by the way, I don't think there's any like sense of like pitting kind of like bosses versus employees or companies versus research. It's really not a either or a verse. It's more like we're all a community. We're all trying to make customers safer as part of what we do. And so if there's an angle where there was a miss on one side or the other, I think it's okay to, you know, call it out. And I think parties should be willing to take that feedback and learn from it. Um, so, and that goes both directions. So there's certainly cases where we feel like, you know, we value the security research community. I mean, you know, we pay out, I think, close to 14 million a year in bug bounties and mm -hmm. really value those relationships that we have with security researchers all around the world. And I think some some of them really get it. You know, some of them are like kind of professional bug bounty hunters and they know about the process. They know what's in scope. They know how to work with different bug bounty programs, whether it's Microsoft or a different one, and they kind of get it. There's other ones where I think maybe they just don't quite get the process. Like we see this occasionally, for example, with pen testers. Like there was a pen tester that gave a talk at DEF CON. It was, it was, it was a good talk-ish, but um, it, was, it was kind of talking about some of their OSINT capabilities and and they made it seem like there was this bug that was the biggest bug in the world and and to them it's really important and i get that that's their yeah. perspective their perspective is important and their angle is like we use this osint capability and that's how we figure out we faster figure out usernames instead of having to scrape linkedin or buy some marketing data or whatever and then we can guess passwords and if they don't have mfa we get in and so like to them that was like the biggest most important thing that they do and i like that's important <clears throat> i get that but like we have this weird thing where you know like many programs there's rules to the program and 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 most of them make sense some of them maybe we could do better on but like there's a servicing bar where a bug is either kind of like you know none or low or moderate or important or critical and important and critical is like a servicing bar for us where there's usually a bug bounty if it's in scope and there's it's something that we track inside MSRC which is the group I work for and so there's a whole different process doesn't mean that if you submit a bug and it gets rated lower moderate, it won't get fixed. The engineering group will still get it. Hopefully, they'll still fix it and mm -hmm. fast. But it gives them an gives them an opportunity to prioritize their their bugs based on it. So anyway, I'm probably too far down in the weeds no, no. already. No, I, I like this because it, it's it's a a glimpse, Jared, inside how you manage software and priorities in the largest software company in the world. Which I think oftentimes we like to throw stones at companies such as Microsoft and Apple and Google not sometimes not realizing just how much many developers and soft how much lines of code that you're responsible for and you have to have some rules in order to to tackle that problem yeah yeah exactly so again you could end up in a scenario where maybe that maybe there's this one individual that to them they wanted to try one time to give their most important technique out to microsoft and maybe they didn't get a bounty and so they're like super salty for the rest of their life and mm. i could understand how that could happen you know having been a security researcher having been a pen tester but i think they have to try to at least at least try to put yourself in the other position and say, well, this is important to me, but it doesn't meet their servicing bar. Was it even in scope for their program? Mm -hmm. You know, did I report it appropriately? Like there's other sides to that. Like what were customers affected by the way I dropped it as a, as opposed to actually submit it? You know, there's just a lot. I'm not saying there's a right or wrong there, by the way. I'm not yeah. like really getting into that. I'm just saying if you take a step back, you realize, and you know, and I didn't always realize that early in my career when I was a researcher, I was kind of more on that other side of like, I just want to tell them about my bug, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you remember the no free bugs thing? That was a really funny thing. I do. Thing. 
<laughs> that, yeah, I mean, that was pretty... But I, I also think that speaks to... I think one thing we're kind of hitting on is the number one frustration point for a security researcher, I want to say, isn't necessarily that they get paid. Because like you point out, Jared, that wasn't always a thing. Uh, we we're lucky to report something back in the day at a certain point and not get sued for it. But uh, And it's not even so much recognition. I think security research, at least I like to think, that we just want to see the bug fixed. And when any company doesn't, I'm not saying it's Microsoft, any company goes, uh, well, you know, thanks for pointing that out, but we're not going to fix it. it. It infuriates most security researchers. And, and like, I get it too, because I'm kind of on the side of like, well, can't you just fix that without, you know, yeah. we obviously have to talk about what, what goes into those decisions, right. right? There's a lot of factors. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes there's nuance to that too. That's tricky. Like for in particular, with the with the tenable blog for example there there was a bug that got reported it was fixed and then you know they went back to look and see i think if it was still uh, vulnerable and they found that there's there was one case where it was and it was a weird corner case where the bug had actually been fixed and deployed in the cloud but there was one operational piece where it hadn't gotten kind of like backported basically into yep. existing connector and so there's What's interesting about that, and is it's we're always evolving. You know how how we do what we do is the uh, the nature of vulnerabilities of like you know you can imagine twenty years ago it's like you fixed a piece of software and then you could go buy the new DVD at Walmart or something to get the new office <laughs> right, or something and right, you took right. it home installed it and then it was your problem to figure out whether you had it installed properly and like run properly monitored properly like you took the patches right or whatever. But now with cloud providers, mm. there's an, there's an operational piece to the patching that's not just a bug fixing um, piece to the puzzle that is, you know, uh, in most cases, you know, great, but occasionally there's like some little things that can slip through the cracks there. Mm. Yeah, you're right. The, the landscape is is different. And that's your area of focus in MSRC is the cloud cloud-based products. Yeah, so yeah. I should maybe if you want, I could even back up and explain a little bit about MSRC. I don't want to get it too far into the plumbing for people that might not know every detail. Hey, there. If nothing else, what does MSRC stand for? Mm. Yeah, the Microsoft Security Response Center is an element of Microsoft that works across all the company to service vulnerabilities that come in in, in whatever way, particularly in most cases through our bug bounty program, but could come in you know, in other angles as well that, you know, get reported or found in, in different groups. Because Microsoft actually being such a big company, like you pointed out, there's actually a lot of different, you know, internal to the company, there's a lot of different security processes, many different SOCs, many different red teams, many different like AppSec teams that are tied to different, like one for Azure and one for Windows and one for Office. And like, it's a really big company. So you can imagine there's like different groups for all these different things, but MSRC kind of sits outside of all that. And we're the ones that, you know, kind of we put out, we do, we have different angles. So in terms of how we're structured, we have a piece that deals with the bug bounty. We have a piece that deals with like our events, like we put on the Blue Hat conference, mm -hmm. which is coming up soon, which by the way, quick plug for that. Friday's the last day to submit a paper to Blue Hat. If you want to get in, please do. It's a great conference. Um, also, Microsoft's hiring. I, I just got a couple of quick plugs. <laughs> two, two free commercials for you there. Sorry about that. <laughs> he doesn't represent Microsoft, by the way. But they are hiring, and Blue Hat is a fantastic conference. Yeah. I, I, when, I, I, when, and, when and where is Blue Hat since we're on the topic? 
Yeah, it's a it, and it's a very unique conference too. It's uh it's kind of a blend of internal external. So there's external folks can submit and come and be part of the conference, but there's also a lot of internal people that attend. So it's kind of this weird it, I think kind of a cool conference where basically Microsoft invites the community inside the gates. You kind of get to come into mode and and come to Redmond and it also happens in Israel. So it's kind of twice a year. Uh, which is really cool. Both campuses are super cool and a great opportunity if you get a chance. So you can go back and look at like some of the talks from last year, for example, if you want to get a sense for for what the flow um, is. And that's changed, obviously, throughout the years. Different, you know, uh, guards have come and gone and stuff for the program. But so there's an element that deals with, you know, or, you know, helps do that. And then there's the element that I kind of am most closely tied to, which there's kind of a couple pieces of that, three pieces, really. There's the kind of engineering piece of all the plumbing, the portal and things that we have. And then there's the what we call SPMs, the security program managers that deal with the life cycle of a case from when it comes in to when it gets fixed with the engineering group. And then there's this like second tier below that, which is what we call VNM. And that's the vulnerabilities and mitigation group. And that's I'm, I'm one of you know, a couple of groups in that. And we're the ones that do basically the assessment of the ticket from a technical perspective. So it comes in and we assess it and say, yeah, the POC repros, it's rated, you know, whatever important EOP or whatever it is. And that that's the kind of work that the folks that report to me do that half their time. And they spend the other half their time, you know, working on novel mitigations research and things like that. Jared, how does, uh, when Microsoft receives a report, like what goes into the process to assign a severity, do you call it a severity rating? Uh, a severity rating to that. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was just talking about. So a case comes in and it flows through, you know, our system and it, it gets to an SPM and they look at it and make sure that it's real. Because you can imagine with a, a company this big and a case this big, we do get, you know, a number of like, you know, people that like just record themselves opening calc or something and send it in and say that they found a vulnerability or something like that. You can yeah, imagine we yep. get all kinds of rubbish like that. Like, it basically spam, right? It's spam reports. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or or actual exploits. We have nation states that try to send in a POC, hoping that we'll run it and try to like. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't think about yeah. that. I, I didn't right? think about yeah. that risk metric. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's actually it's actually gnarly. It's actually gnarly. Uh, but anyway, assuming it's none of those scenarios, it comes to it gets cased by an SPM, and then they assign it to a VNM, what we call a React engineer, mm -hmm. and we're the ones that actually do um, the assessment of like what you, you can actually, if you just Google like MSRC bug bounty or MSRC uh, bug bar, we have a we have a very public like servicing bar, bug bar that shows you exactly like what's in scope for the program and mm -hmm. what meets the bar for those things that are in scope for the program. So the better bug bounty hunters will do their homework on that and they'll figure out because we even have a blog that shows you like this is how you should do your report if you want it to get like well received write it exactly like this and so mm -hmm. you know we have a, a well like defined process that can help you because you can imagine some of our, our bug bounty hunters are they're probably like they're like 19 and live in egypt or whatever right like who, i'm just one example you know and so like the, the, this may not be there's like there may be a little bit of a learning curve to, for them to even like understand like what's our process and what are we expecting and looking for and how to how to do better on that. Yeah, we'll mm -hmm. we'll take the the nineteen living in Egypt out and we'll replace that with um, young and young and inexperienced where English may not be their first language. Yeah, that's kind of that was the point I was trying. Yeah, to make. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> out of curiosity, um, I, I'm sure the answer is yes, but I'm curious as to how Microsoft does it. I mean. You know, I work with clients. I've been working with clients, you know, organizations for twenty-seven odd years, and a a very that common, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, I'm legacy because <laughs> uh, uh, I am old. 
But, uh, you know, a, a common pushback for fixing vulnerabilities, especially in applications, is, uh, you know, or, you know, not installing a, a Microsoft patch for fear of breaking a legacy application. Uh, it, you know, is there a certain aspect of MSRC that's devoted to, you know, not just the not just the Microsoft level type of stuff, but the, but the, you know, the trickle up, trickle down of, you know, what, what, what vulnerabilities might be more apparent in the applications that are running on Microsoft platforms, if that question makes sense. Or like a danger to the ecosystem, right? Is it, what, what danger does it pose to the ecosystem? Yeah. Well, yeah I, I think that makes sense. I think I'm asking, you know, what 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 degree does Microsoft delve into the implications of, you know, vulnerabilities that are at the OS Microsoft level and and the the ripple effect of what applications might be impacted, you know, based on the patch, based on the fix? Because that's certainly a concern of your consumers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, enterprises and organizations across the land, and it's certainly an excuse that's been presented for millennia for, for why patches aren't getting installed at the OS level, you know, for fear of some legacy application breaking. Um, I, I would think that Microsoft, you know, in some permutation takes that into account, but I, I'm just curious what, what you can say about that. Yeah, no, great question. And uh, I think that's why we'll all be gainfully employed till forever, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> the complexity of the things that we deal with. See, I have like at least three points there. I mean, first of all, you know, one thing that's interesting is that in MSRC, we're kind of an advocate for that because most of our engineering teams are amazing, but even internally, occasionally we'll have that one team that's like, ah, I don't know if we want to, you know, service this because blah, blah, blah. And then we're like, no, no, this needs to get fixed. So like, it, it's interesting to researchers probably don't even realize that we're, we're often advocating for them, even, even when they don't maybe even know it. So that's, that's an interesting angle that, you know, kind of exists probably in most companies. There's there's the security piece that's always really, you know, pushing proactively for that. And then I guess to your point, it's a, uh, I've seen that same thing, you know, like you go into, I remember when I, I had, uh, I mean, glasses again, but I had, I had a PRK, which is similar to LASIK at one point. And uh, it you know it doesn't last forever, sadly. But you know he's like put your put your eyeball in this machine, and that's how we'll scan your eye to do the surgery or whatever. And it was like the oldest looking like Windows XP or whatever. And I'm like this thing, like I don't want to put my face in that. Are you kidding me? Like I'm probably gonna go blind, you know. <laughs> but he's like, well, we can't update it because our software won't run on. You know, they're like we've all heard that same yep. you know excuse, and uh, we try not to put up with that internally. But you know there is an element of that's one reason why sometimes, you know, in a coordinated vulnerability disclosure process, if we try to fix, you know, um, vulnerabilities in a certain very tight window SLA, um, particularly in cloud and things. But occasionally you want to make sure that you don't want to break everything either. There does need to be a certain level of like strong testing anytime you're rolling out a patch. And, and so there's that from the provider standpoint. And then there's the I guess from the third, the, the, I guess the last point I would make is kind of more along the lines of open source. And you didn't really say that, you know, in terms of, you know, supply chain and all that. But I think that kind of factors mm -hmm. in a little bit to what you're talking about, which is, you know, how does, you know, how does everything else that gets leveraged and used and, and you know, all of that work in lieu of, of what we're doing? And that's a whole nother discussion we could have, but it's relevant to the conversation as well.
I mean, it's almost like a, a Microsoft scapegoat debunking department or something like that. <laughs> you know, you know, when you know, when and how often does Microsoft push back and say, "No, you really can't blame us for this," or "You can't use us as the scapegoat because of something like open source or whatever the you know whatever the scenario is." Yeah, I think in most cases, companies could like if there is some medical equipment or some you know, factory equipment, like then the reason is they can't update it because of you know, windows or something. I think usually that's not true. It's usually just more of a cost thing from their perspective, as far as like, they don't want to have to retune oh, absolutely. or re- retest absolutely. or whatever it is. It's the time and the expense and the complexity, especially in like in a retail environment, imagine having to upgrade an application, you know, times 10, you know, tens of thousands across of thousands of locations all across the country. Yeah. You, know, you know, see it a lot. Yep. Yeah, I have to. <laughs> um, Jared, I had, um, I would just want to talk about certificate revocation for a moment because I, I freely admit that I've kind of bashed Microsoft about certificate revocation, but I think it kind of comes back to the more I talk about it, like that responsibility that Microsoft has for so many uh, users to preserve and give them a working operating system. Whereas if they were to update something, yes, it would be more secure. And we end up with, in most cases, more of a phase, kind of slower rollout, which still comes under scrutiny. But um, how did did you classify those differently if, you know, the fix is to update some kind of certificate revocation list in some capacity? I'm assuming, are those classified differently and treated differently? Because it's not really a, it is a software fix, but not really, right? You're not fixing a memory corruption vulnerability. It's a, the certificate's got to get pulled, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So my sister team, you know, deals more with the the Windows side and the memory corruption and kind of the platforms. We call it platform. Basically, that means like mm-hmm. Windows bugs, the operating system specific bugs that you're kind of talking about, especially related to certificates, uh, maybe that are related to different kinds of drivers or whatever it might be. So um, my peer might be best, you know, suited to answer that. But I would say in general, the answer is probably just kind of what we were talking about before that, you know, there's anytime there's a need to change, you know, the platform, there does need to be extensive testing, especially on that to make sure that we don't legitimately disable. Imagine if there was some, you know, kind of piece of hardware or medical, you know, equipment that had a driver that all of a sudden wouldn't work and somebody dies on the table because the scanner doesn't work or something, or, you know, that would be probably a worse disaster than whatever else was in lieu of that. So there's, there's a, there's a real, a real need to, you know, for us security folks to be reasonable and balanced about that. But I think that's the one thing I hope to see change in our industry over time is more win-wins rather than trade-offs. Cause there is, there has always been this usability versus security. And, and again, I, I really hate it when things get pitted against each other, where you have to pick like one or the other. I really think that we need to drive towards solutions that allow for both. Yeah, agreed. Cool. Um, for those uh, who are participating in the in the bug bounty program, I guess what's the what's the most common mistake you see people submitting make? Like, do, what do they what do they miss in their submission, or like, what is your advice to improve the submissions? Because you're obviously seeing the yeah. submissions that come through, Jared. And Paul, after that, after after Jared answers, I'm gonna sort of follow on to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, c- feel free to cut me short if I go too long on this because I feel like I could go for a long time on this. <laughs> you might be able to go for a long time on my next one too, so it's okay. Well, this is important. Now you've got you've got a voice now, so you can address everyone all at once. <laughs> you just you just got me on my soapbox. Um, no, no. It's actually it's funny because I do think different finders are motivated for different reasons. Mm. You know, 
to your point. Um, and it's, it's, you know, sometimes it can be a little bit hard to understand that. And, but I think if you can, if you do understand that, sometimes it helps you see where they're coming from. Like I was saying, pen testers typically aren't motivated to submit to the program because that would burn their TTPs. And they usually yeah. don't have good anyway. They have more like a string of, you know, kind of low to moderate critical bugs that they use as sort of a common pattern to pen test. They're not actual like software vulnerabilities. So they generally don't love to report. And if they do, they don't get a buy and then they're mad because they tried it once and it didn't work. Like there's like that angle is kind mm. of a different angle. And then you have your, I would call professional bug bounty hunters who are people who make a living off this. That's mm-hmm. like they make, you know, two, three hundred thousand. Like they some of them like kill it. They find they find a mine of bugs and they figure out how to submit exactly the right reports, exactly the right bugs. They, they know exactly what's in scope and what's most critical and what pays the most. And they're like, literally, it's a it's a day job to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's that angle of folks. And that's an interesting folk uh, because a lot of times that's a great relationship we have with them because ultimately, wh- whatever reason they're doing it for, they're helping customers. You know, we want them to partner with us and submit those. And so that's a, we're happy to pay that. And that's a great relationship. The other relationship that's a little more tenuous, I would say, is companies like Wiz and Orca and Tenable and stuff is they some of them, they do. Uh, submit to the program and they do take bounties, but they do it from a business growth perspective. So they're, they're doing it so that they can hype up their blogs and basically be yeah. like, look at this bug we found and wow, like well, we're so great, but we help mitigate it. And so like, that's a, like a different angle of finder that submits things. And that's fine. I mean, that's, we're happy to partner with them too. Um, Comes like a self licking ice cream cone though. Yeah, there's no problem with that. The only problem with those type of organizations that do that is because they're motivated by the big splash. I think, I don't know for sure. Like I haven't asked them, I, I probably shouldn't even say this, but I, pro- I think some of them, what they'll do is they'll find like two bugs in a similar area and they'll submit one. And they know that we have like a 30 day SLA to get it passed. And on day 29, they'll be like, look, you didn't fix it all the way. Here's this other one you didn't get right. And then they make a big blog about how we screwed it up and took too long. And they'd be, they're basically <laughs> sitting on that second bug so that they can make the big splash and get the big PR and like grow there. And it works. They, mm. these, I mean, these companies have nailed this as a business model. It's like PR as a business model. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Interesting. Hey, before Larry oh, jumps in with oh, this question, damn it. Uh, sorry, Larry. Uh, just a real quick clarification. You, you've used scope uh, as a term several times. Could you just very briefly uh, elaborate on on what in scope or not in scope means in the context of what you're doing? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's actually kind of a, a different philosophy. There are some companies that just say find bugs in our company you know, of any kind. And I don't, they probably mm-hmm. still have some scope. Like you probably can't go break into their offices or or something, but like like any of their online presences, like any of their IPs, you're you're able to you know basically attack and submit a, a, a vulnerability to, and that that would be part of their bounty. They would commit to like not you know kind of pursue you as an attacker or whatever. Like you're, it's almost like a pen test authorization to an extent, if that makes sense. As long as you okay. follow the rules of the bounty program. Um, Microsoft does it a little bit different because it's such a big company with so many different products. Um, they don't, not everything's in scope. So if you just go find a bug in a random server that's online that happens to be a Microsoft IP and submit it, even if it's a decent bug, we've had a couple people get upset and they're like, hey, you know, I, that was a good bug. And we're like, I know, like, thank you. It's <laughs> not in scope. <laughs> Um, and sometimes we'll try to squeak them in anyway and get them a bounty because we really want to take care of people. We don't really want to be all like, oh, you didn't follow the rule, you know, like, 
So I think sometimes we'll leave a little wiggle there, but it's really not the intent. The intent is for people to like, like read the scope, like just look at like, if you just Google, like I said, MSRC, like bug bounty program, you can like read the scope for each, like basically it's like a hundred separate, I don't know, hundred, quite a few, I'm exaggerating, different like programs, like there's an Azure program and an Office program and a Windows program and a Hyper-V program. And they all kind of have like, they, they, it shows the exact amounts for like each award for each type. So a critical Hyper-V would pay this and an important, you know, Azure would pay this. And so there's kind of like this well-defined scope of what's in scope and what's out of scope. And that that allows us to kind of focus our efforts and for us to help channel the research community toward like, this is what we think we need help with. We don't necessarily need as much help over in this area, but, you know, if we get some, we're happy to look at anything anybody submits, we'll look at it. And sometimes we'll try to make sure that we can work with them on that if it doesn't happen to be exactly the way it it should be. But I would recommend that people <clears throat> understand that to Paul's question about what's the common mistake people make. That's a big one, which is like not understanding the program or the scope and not doing a mm. good write up, like just doing a really bad POC that doesn't work good. It doesn't reproduce. Like we can't, like it doesn't work for us. Like what's going on, you know, like. Just, you know, that those are probably the two biggest mistakes we see. Cool. Larry? All right, so I'm going to flip this on, on on its head a little bit. Paul asked about, so what makes a good submission? How can folks submit stuff that was going to get looked at? Uh, but on the converse, let's say you've got we've got a company that knows that they should have a bug bounty program but doesn't and wants to establish one. You know, what are some of the things that you've observed that can really help make that bug bounty program a success? Great question. Ooh, okay. Um, let me take them separately and make sure that I get your point. So I think what I said first quickly is that the good submission would be th that it's in scope. That would be a good start and that it's uh, follows the like rules for submission as far as having a good proof of concept, a good write up. A lot of times it helps if you have a video. We, we usually prefer people if they can show a video of what they're doing. That really helps a lot. So we can see, oh yeah, they really did. There was an API token that leaked or something. And it's very obvious that they didn't just Again, sometimes people will just like pull their own key out of their browser and be like, look, I hacked Microsoft or something. I found a key and that's yours. So you just you just showed us your key. Thank you. Thanks. You know, yeah, we but. gave it to you. It was so it was on purpose. <laughs> yeah. So that's there's that. You know, that's kind of part of the the what makes a good one. And just being I think the other thing that makes a good relationship is being willing to press in. So let's say that you get a response back that says, you know, we really appreciate it. This bug was rated, you know, low or moderate. So it doesn't quite meet the bar for a bounty, but we really, you know, appreciate it. If if you just, you know, work with us and say, if you're like, let's say you're convinced it's important, you know, you can feel free to message back and say, no, I, instead of just rage blogging, you could be like, I think this is important. And here's why. And here's like another stab at me explaining it. And there's been times where like, oh yeah, that actually makes sense. Like we didn't, you didn't show that and we didn't understand that. But like, now that you're, you're like taking another stab at it, like that makes sense. So I think being willing to like, kind of like partnering with anybody, if you have, if you're in consulting, you have clients, like just being willing to press in, you know, treat us as like a client or a consulting, you know, type of thing. And that would, it'll, it, it'll help the relationship. Okay. Yes, I don't know if that was a, an exact answer. I mean, but uh, but I think I can draw something from that. And I think, you know, one of the things that would make a successful um, uh, bug bounty program is treat your submitters like a partner. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. That was the second part of your question. I hadn't really gotten to that part, okay. which was if, if <laughs> so that if so you, a, you answered some of the second part with the first part. There you go. So now we'll right. move on to the second part. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess the this the the start of your second question was what if there's a company that should run a program that doesn't 
And I guess I would encourage them to use the business data as much as they can to show that. Because imagine a company so huge as we are, we pay out like 14 million a year, which is the largest private bug bounty program. But actually, that's not that much money compared to like, what would it cost us to employ 2000 researchers in 50 different companies, which is like roughly what we have that are part of our program, you know, worldwide, like a lot more than that, right? So mm-hmm. it's kind of like the cheapest, you know, uh, I don't say cheapest. That makes it sound like it's cheap. It's it's a, it's an it's an amazing investment, <laughs> and you get a great ROI for sure. you know the program that you're willing to run there. So I, I would say if there's a company that's on the edge and they're trying to figure it out, you know, try to work the business angle of that and make sure that it makes sense. Your business leaders understand why that makes sense and be able to because. I feel like every like once a year, everybody in security has to like rejustify why they exist. It's like, why don't we just fire all you all are just a cost center, right? And it's like, well, no, <laughs> no. No, that's not how it's, yeah, let's let's go back to the beginning. I, I know I explained this to you last year, but let me try again this year and see if we can get it. You know, there's like this need to like re re-examine our existence every year, I think, in security. So it's something that security leaders get pretty good at, I guess, over time. Um that's the first point I would make as far as running a bug buddy. The second part I would make is start small. There's a lot of companies that'll help you. You know, there's a lot of third party vendors out there that can sure. kind of like basically manage your bug bounty program for you. So because what we do is actually very expensive. Like we spend a lot more internally than we do in the but when the bounty piece we pay out is the smallest expense of our bug bounty program because we have a huge internal operations that because we run our own program. So m- most, you know, small mid-sized companies obviously wouldn't be able to afford that. So you know, use a partner is probably not a bad bet. Sure. Um, and then, yeah, I'll let you talk, but I, I have other points too, uh, as far as what, what, what would help the program run good, but I, I'd love to get your feedback on those so far. I think one, one thing I'm, I'm gleaning from this conversation, Jared, I think is very important. And that is just because a company, right? Microsoft aside, any company has a bug bounty program. It doesn't mean that you're going to, the program's going to find all the bugs it also doesn't mean that everything someone submits is going to get the highest severity. And it also doesn't mean that anytime you get a submission that the company is going to fix it. Like that's not in the, that's not how it's it not works. The charter, right? It's not in the charter. So like we just, I think we need to the, come down back down to ground zero and just go, yeah, sometimes when a bug bounty hunter submits a bug, it's not going to get fixed. It ha- like that's just, that's just the nature of the game. Sometimes it's not. And you get it. We all have to be okay with that. But what I'm hearing is that there's something to be said for, and we've talked about this many times on the show, you know, the, the impact, the consequence, maybe even the likelihood, you know, okay, you've, you've shown us a vulnerability. Don't assume that Microsoft or any vendor is going to immediately connect the dots and say, wow, because this exists, all this bad stuff could happen. So what I'm hearing is a a better submission is one that kind of, walks through a, a, a little bit of scenarios, however hypothetical they are of, you know, because this exists, I think this could happen, whether I've proved it or not. And, and you know, just to, you know, just again, from a part partnership perspective, you know, it, it's the beginning of that, you know, you know, like a good pen test exercise. Okay. This is here. What can we do with it? And, and just kind of brainstorm it a little bit. And, and that, that would help, I think, I think that what I'm hearing is that does help the the classification of the vulnerability and, and whether whether or not it gets fixed or how quickly it gets fixed. Yeah. Yes, no? Yeah, I think 
Yeah, I think what, especially going back to what Paul just said about like kind of all, we all sit down and cry and realize that this whole thing is is harder than we thought, you know, in terms of <laughs> running the program and, you know, and like mm-hmm. coming to this realistic moment about what it means to to work this and and how, you know, bugs get looked at and like having a realistic view of, of how the program works. I think it's, it's a really cool opportunity to kind of talk about it here on the show. And then, but as far as the actual submission, yeah, I mean, I don't think for every submission, because we, we process a lot of submissions, we don't need like a long, like what you were just talking about as far as like, you know, a long draw, like scenario, like imagine scenario A and B and C and like, and like really like that could be helpful, but it, that isn't needed in every case. If it's a straightforward bug, like if you're like, I found an XSS in this thing, I know it's important. I've submitted five of these before I've gotten paid for all of them because they're all, you know, like if you, if you know exactly what you're doing, you can submit exactly just what we need and what we want. And that's fine. And it gets processed super quickly. So it kind of depends on the scenario and the type of bug and stuff, I guess I would say to your, po- your, your point. Gotcha. Jared, have you ever, well, are you ever surprised, um, you don't have to answer this, but like if you're surprised at the uh, severity of the bugs that come through, in other words, like how often does the team go, oh my God, that's super critical. Like, is there like a button at your desk at Microsoft that you push like a, a red phone that like we need to, the, we the need, oh shit yeah, button. Yeah, the oh shit button, like we need to fix this. Or my fear is that when someone finds a bug like that, they're not going to Microsoft's bug bounty, right? And they're going to sell it. On, on the black market, on the dark web, wherever you want to phrase it, right? That's kind of my, my concern. I think bug bounties do a great thing to help curb that. But also, I think what keeps us all up at night is this one aspect of, yeah, if really bad people find a really bad bug or come across a really bad, you know, vulnerability or exploit, they're going to keep it and do bad things that are monetized outside of Microsoft. I'm just imagining this giant gong or something like that in my office, Microsoft- like, over <laughs> <laughs> Now you got to make that a reality. <laughs> you're, wish, you're, yeah. you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, I'd be hitting it every day. It'd be too much fun. I don't think they trust me with a gong. So, um, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I would say just in general, yes and no. I mean, one thing that's interesting is if you've been in the field as long as I think everybody on this call has been, you see a lot of the same principles over and over again. So, yeah. imagine mm-hmm. for example like a uh, like a race condition type bug like a time of check time of use mm-hmm. or something that could exist in the browser could exist in a kernel could exist in like microcode could exist in uh, the cloud could exist in ai like imagine an ai that trains itself on wiki and, and you know when it trains there's this like 20 minute period every night where it looks at wiki or something you quit go and edit it ai trains itself wrongfully and then later in the day, Wiki goes back and is like, oh, who made this edit? That's stupid. That's obviously not, you know, who George Washington was or whatever, and like fixes itself. But by then the damage is done because there's some. Mm-hmm. So like it's huh, kind of shit. interesting. I'll be, that I'll, be, I'll be right back. I got to go make some Wikipedia right? edits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the same principles. And I'm just that's just obviously one hypothetical. I don't think that's a thing. But you you can imagine that like we see a lot of interesting principles. You're, if you're like, oh, gosh. I feel like I've seen this bug before, but yeah. it's in a brand new technology. You know what I mean? And so, mm-hmm. yes and no to your question, I guess I would say. So you see a lot well, of uh, repeat classes of bugs because the classes of bugs don't often change. I mean, maybe there's offshoots of classes of bugs, but uh, for the most part, they're still the, yeah. Uh, there's nothing new and innovative that's coming across your desk, right? Um, I still get concerned that for anyone's bug bounty program, I'm not picking on Microsoft, anyone's bug bounty program, if you have something valuable enough that exceeds, you know, or exceeds what, or maybe your mission is you need this bug, 
<laughs> right? For whatever, you know, enemy nation state has it, that it's not going to get reported through the through the bug bounty. And that, I mean, bug bounty is not going to fix that. I don't think it was designed really to solve 100% of the problems. Yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest threat there is probably more like on the nation state level and things like that, where people are motivated to not you know, work through any kind of, because occasionally you'll see a really good bug that didn't even like, nobody even wanted a bounty. It just like came through CERT or like somebody was just like, hey, I just want to let you guys know this. You're like, wow, okay, great. You know, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. So you so see like, the other you know, way it, too. It kind of, it's across the board, I would say, to your point. Mm. Yeah, I, I'd be along the lines of one of those, oh yeah, I could submit this to Microsoft bug bounty and get a couple thousand dollars for it. Or I could sell it to, you know, an adversary and get, you know, $20,000, $30,000 for her. My problem would be, uh, who do I contact at those adversaries yeah. to, right. to sell that? No. Like, I think Microsoft makes this really easy to pay me. I think so, Casey, Casey and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Bugcrowd and I have, have talked about this before, too. And yep. we, I yeah. think we brought up this exact point that, yeah, but like you have to know the inter, you have to mingle with those people that would do that. And right. Most of us don't want to mingle it, with those people. A, and to Jared's point too, like most people submit through the bug brownie. Sometimes it comes through a cert, and the person is just is reporting out, out of goodwill. And that's that's more the case, right? I, and I also think I um I think in our, our previous call, Jared, you were saying like the size and scope of let's Microsoft's bug bounty program. Things are going really well. Like you just paid out millions of dollars to researchers. Most researchers are continuing happily, you know, uh, participating in the program, and there's always going to be there's always going to be fringe cases, right, where where things just didn't line up for whatever reason, and that's going to happen. And but I think those are just that they're fringe cases, so we shouldn't poo poo this whole process or let people poo poo this whole process just because like a few people may have had bad experiences, right? Yeah, and I think it's fine for people to live, you know, if they had a lived experience that was negative and they want to, you know, cry on Twitter, they should be able to do that. Like, I think yeah, that, that yeah. there's there's a time and a place for that that's legitimate. And if, and if there's corrections that need to be made, you know, you know, we'd humbly want to know that and accept that. But yeah, I think you're right. You're exactly right. I mean, when you when you think about like 99% of, of, you know, finders are like people you don't know and haven't heard of because they don't tweet a lot because they don't really right. want to share exactly how they, they're making money on it. You yes, know, like, yes. So like, it's the few that like are really public and love to make a splash and like the squeaky wheel gets the oil and it's kind of always been like that. So that's fine. Jeff. I wanted to back up a little bit and sort of ask Paul's questions from two or three ago, a little bit different way. So, you know, in terms of there's, there's, categories or classes of bugs and there's probably certain things that show up you know relatively frequently as as far as repeat offenders uh, to what degree do you guys you know obviously your your bug bounty hunter facing primarily but you know what 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 do you guys have in place to go back internally and do kind of lessons learned or mm. report back to some of the developers at Microsoft and say hey you know over the last six months, nine months, whatever the time period is, we've seen this certain class of bug pop up more times than we expect. Maybe you guys ought to think about, you know, maybe you don't pr provide advice. Maybe you just report it back to, you know, sort of the, the source. Uh, you know, can you can you elaborate on that at all? You know, what, what does Microsoft do in terms of lessons learned and feedback? To You know, I'm, I'm assuming that people at Microsoft you know, would rather write new code and write new features that don't have the bugs so that you don't have to go through all this process. But, you know, how do you feed back to, to, to corporate and the mothership and the developers, uh, you know, what, what, what you guys have in, as findings in your program? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And it would probably take a while to fully unpack that. But um, mm. bug bounties, the smallest part of our security element in that sense. I mean, if you think about the, the resources that we have internally for internal, you know, SDLC teams and, you know, AppSec teams and internal red teams and our, what we call our mystic Microsoft threat hunting and our different socks and, 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 and so there's obviously a lot more resources spent on security than, than, you know, than the really relatively small piece of bug bounty, but bug bounty is a high impact piece, even though it's like the smallest piece, probably it's really high impact because it kind of, it, it's, it's indicative of like, you know, the things that slip through the cracks, like security researchers, we're kind of like the smoke alarm, you know, we kind of like, we start crying before the house catches on fire, right? And we're kind of meant to be that. And that program gives us an outlet to tap into that and, and take care of people so that they do that responsibly. And so it's a really important piece. So that said, you know, in terms of how do we then go back and share those learnings with the company, there's a lot of ways, actually, when as soon as the case gets submitted, there's a lot of like machinery that basically kicks off, you know, everything from, you know, like variant hunting, because we don't just, you know, hey, you know, here's a case, let's fix it. And then we're just we forget about it. It's like, we have teams that'll go and then look around those same areas and see if there's other variants that might be similar to that. And so there's a whole piece of that. There's a whole lessons learned piece to your point. Uh, that varies a little bit group to group, but yeah, kind of taking those learnings and looking at our top things that we're seeing and realizing that, okay, you know, we're seeing like, and and understanding the criticality of them too. So for example, we might get more um, cases of cross-site scripting, but the actual lived severity of that is not, you know, super impactful to the business where we may not get as many SSRFs, for example, but the criticality of those would be higher. And so we would want to try to really drill and double tap on that and understand, you know, is there any possibility that these could exist in places that haven't been discovered yet or aren't so easy for, you know, researchers to maybe take a look at and things like that. So there's definitely a whole machinery that happens around around cases. Jared, I'm just when you say like machinery and automation, I'm just imagining that when a bug bounty is confirmed or a you know, bounty is uh, confirmed in the system, the, the developer gets a message or their chair buzzes or zaps them or something. Whoever made that commit, right? <laughs> I'm not saying that's in, this is shaming. The, shaming developers is not the way to go. It's or, not what or I'm there's a gong for. in there. I was just when you said, oh yeah, something <laughs> something happens to that developer. You know, they get a, a demotion, a little something pops up on their screen or you know something like that. That's not a way to manage your developers. Though. There's there's actually a giant MSRC cattle prod we have. We just yeah. walk over. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> but I think I, I like Jeff's question too, is that I think part of a, a successful bug bounty program and, and monetizing on that from a philosophical standpoint is taking what you've learned from that, that report and feeding it back into your processes to go, this bug was introduced, not shaming. I was joking, like you not shaming or, or punishing developers. That doesn't, that doesn't work at all. Um, well, but not the first, not the first time. Not the, yeah. the, <laughs> the flogging will continue until code <laughs> improves, right? Um, but making it a, a lesson learned so that they can produce code that doesn't have those bugs, right? And making it part of the process, I think, is important for anyone's bug bounty program. Yeah, exactly. Now, it's it's almost never about the individual in any case. It's always really like more like where did the process break down? Like why wasn't this caught earlier in our right. in our security investigations? Why wasn't it thought about in threat modeling? Why wasn't it caught by our static analysis tool that gets run on every line of code? You know, there's a lot of these things that uh, get looked at and security is getting better all the time, but yet mm -hmm. the complexity and the amount of code that's fielded is is like, you know, continually outpacing even that. So it's that's the challenge in our field really. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the ultimate paradox, though, because you you would think an organization as large 
and as well-funded and as organized as Microsoft that has so many in program programs in place, you'd think there should never be a need for a bug bounty program because we, you know, we do everything proactively ahead of time and, and we nail it. Now, we all understand that that's not realistic and that's why bug bounty programs exist. But that's still, I would think, a, a, you know, an overarching goal is you're, you're trying to look for improvement. I, I would imagine there's there's multiple development teams within Microsoft that certainly are keeping track of, you know, how many bug bounties you guys are paying out or even just, you know, acknowledging whether there's a payout or not, how many of them are attributed to, to their individual team, whether that's, you know, tied to bonuses or incentives or anything like that, you know, whatever. But I, I got to believe, I mean, if I was a developer, I would want to know I, if I was on a mm. team, I'd want to be keeping track. We're, you know, we're a competitive species, so I'm sure there's some sort of internal within the dev teams at Microsoft. Well, we, you know, we've only had three bug bounties. How many have you had? Team X, Team Orange. No, I don't. I will say I don't think there's anything like that. Microsoft actually has a pretty strong uh, culture, which is nice. Such as set this. Uh, we want to be uh, learn it alls, not know it alls. And so there's this really kind culture mm-hmm. inside of Microsoft that I was surprised to find when I started working here because the prior reputation of the Balmer and, and Gates days, I think, were a different company, is from what yeah. I understand. But I never, I never worked there mm-hmm. during those. There probably was something like that. I guess is what I'm saying at that time. But no, there's nothing like that now because it just doesn't set the right the right tone for what sure. we're trying to do. But look, the other thing I would say is, you know, about the whole, like, you know, can't Microsoft just get it right from the get go? I mean, we just know, like you said, we, we all in this industry get it. Like, I remember, I don't know if you all remember this. It was, this was quite a few years ago, but Carbon Black actually came out. I think it was them came out and said, we stop a hundred percent of the badness. And then people were like, BS. And then they're like, well, we stopped 99% nine of, of the badness or something like that. And people were like, BS. Like, there's just no, like, it's just not, mm. it's so easy to bypass your, you know, like most, it's just there's no such thing as 100% security. And and we all get it. Like if somebody, if some product company stands in front of me and says, my software is 100% bug free, I just immediately laugh and walk away and buy something else. Like there's just yeah. no way you believe that, right? No like rational right. thinking person that's been in the security field is going to buy that. And so I've actually always been impressed, even, even when I wasn't a Microsoft player and I wasn't necessarily either unimpressed or unimpressed with Microsoft. I didn't really know that much about them, but like I was always impressed that uh, they were willing to engage the security research community, like that giant fake check on my wall that says $10,000. I actually won that in 2012 when I submitted to Microsoft's first uh, Blue Hat prize contest, which before their bug bounty, they basically Mm. had a contest where if you could... uh, if you could create a mitigation, because one of the things that I never got back to, somebody asked about like closing the loop and mitigations and how it all works. But MSRC has also worked on a lot of mitigations throughout the years. If you've ever heard of things like ASLR and DEP and all, all those came out of MSRC from way back in the day, trying to deal with memory corruption bugs. But I, I designed sort of like an, an anti-ROP type thing that you know I submitted and ended up winning like third prize in this contest. But anyway, I, I was, it's a long story. It'd take me a while to tell the whole story. But the, the point is like, I was impressed that they cared enough to even try to do something like that. Cause that's yeah. expensive to run a program like that. And like, they picked me up in a Hummer limo at like Black Hat to like announce the winners at this party, you know, in that year. And it was like, wow, this was kind of fun. I'm surprised they did this. Like, why did they do this? Like, not a lot of like, you never see Apple doing that. You never see, you know, a lot of other big companies like they're just they basically try to like, let's just sweep it under the rug as much as possible. And, and that's fine. I mean, that's one approach. But I think Microsoft's always taken the approach a little bit more of the realistic like, yes, we have vulnerabilities in software. Software has vulnerabilities. We want to partner with you to help make customers safer. Like we're both a vendor and a security company. So we have a realistic viewpoint on how this whole thing works. 
I do want to give another plug for for Microsoft, Jared. In that um, you mentioned, a, a Blue Hat is one of the, uh, the like organizations within MSRC, and recently they've started a Blue Hat podcast. And I really, I really like it. And they've interviewed people like Dave Weston and Amanda Russo, Malware Unicorn, who both work at Microsoft, mm-hmm. but I think in completely different divisions than you than you were. And there's a lot of notable figures that work on different teams within Microsoft. And many have been there for a really long time, which is another testament to the culture that you mentioned uh, in Microsoft. That's true. Yeah, I, I think the, the the Blue Hat podcast is fantastic, and uh, maybe I'll get a chance to be on it someday. So yeah, and it's and you're right. A lot of the folks that have been on are on different security teams across Microsoft, which is very cool and kind of complex just to understand all the different angles that we have going on from from those different things. Yeah, because there's it's you there's like over two hundred thousand Microsoft employees just to give a, a you know rough estimate of just the size and, and scope. So, uh, in a lot of a lot of different areas, but I thought it was great that we kind of honed in on the MSRC and have uh, an understanding of what you folks do uh, and how you're organized. That was good. That was some good insights. Yeah, thanks. Hopefully that was uh, helpful. Jared, anything else you want to share with um, with us and our listeners? Um, no, I think, I think I hit all the different things that we wanted to, that, you know, we could talk about related to programs, been really fun being on and always enjoy getting a chance to kind of talk about how we can all make uh, customers safer, which is kind of the North star of, you know, it's easy to get hung up on any other thing, especially a big company that every team kind of has their own internal metrics and the things they track and the things they do, but the North star needs to continue to be, how do we uh, keep the company and the software and, and, and first and foremost customers safer? And that's kind of the goal. Uh, Jared, just five questions left for you. Do you ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? Okay. Three words to describe yourself. Ooh, uh, I would say um, fun, energetic, and learner. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? I mean, it's got to be cyber, right? If you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Um... How a poor blue collar kid became a hacker. What is your favorite hacker movie? Hackers. <laughs> choose choose two celebrities to be your parents, alive, dead, fictional, or otherwise. Ooh, um, Captain Kirk and Captain Picard. <laughs> cool. <laughs> nice. Nice. Or, oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. Uh, which, which which age Picard? Um, <laughs> Well, next generation or Picard's here. Yeah. It's funny you say that because in the recent series, which you probably watched, I mean, it's like, it's a cool, it's a great series, the the recent Picard thing. uh, Although I think The Strange New World was better, but he's so old. I mean, it's just, he's doing awesome. He's a great actor. And Mm. like the scenes where they try to show him running, he's like, yeah. Yeah, we we just fi- we just finished Picard in our house, and we just started on Strange New Worlds, and yeah, it was I, and I caught something, and I know it's not true, but it was of along the lines of like Picard, you're 92 now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and Jared's only in his 40s, that's why he he leaned towards hackers. So whatever. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the second season of Strange New Worlds is awesome. Oh, nice. I that's particularly like the one. If you haven't seen it, there's one episode that basically they sing through the entire episode. It's hilarious and so well done that it just made me laugh. It was awesome. I get to get back to that. I started it. I got to finish it. Yeah, I think we're only about one or two episodes yeah. in on season one. So we just yeah. just started. Yeah. Well, Jared, yeah. thank you cool. so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. 
Thank you. Thanks for having me. With that, we'll take a short break. Come back with the security news. Stay tuned. Hi, folks. I'm Adrian Sanabria, the host of Enterprise Security Weekly. Every week, we interview the most interesting folks we can find talking about the most pressing cybersecurity issues and challenges facing the enterprise today. Myself and my co-hosts have each been in the industry for decades, long enough to see the patterns in the industry and explore where trends are going. In addition to enterprise challenges, we also follow the vendor space, the most interesting security startups emerging, technology and product trends, all the most interesting funding and acquisition announcements. Finally, we love to discuss the latest trends in tech and how they'll impact cybersecurity. If you're wondering how the latest in AI, quantum computing, cloud, and DevOps is going to impact security a few years down the road, you should follow the Enterprise Security Weekly Podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul Security Weekly. Register for an official cybersecurity summit at securityweekly.com forward slash cybersecurity summit using the code secweek23 and get $100 off admission. Also, make sure you subscribe to the Below the Surface podcast by Eclipsium in partnership with CRA. Myself and Scott Shefferman host this show, and we've had the pleasure of speaking with some amazing guests, including Zeno Kova and Richard Hughes. You can find all of the episodes at eclipsium.com forward slash podcast. Uh, I can tease the next episode will be with one of my cohort workers who we're going to talk about uh, in this segment, uh, Nate Warfield, talking about enterprise IoT and appliances and the security or insecurity of those devices. Wait, what What was this? What now? What now? Yes. Wait, enterprise, what? Like oh? your um, Cisco network. Well, hold on, let me uh, introduce Lee. Lee Neely has joined us. Lee, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. It's been a couple of weeks or a couple of minutes. I don't know. It's been a bit. Yeah, it's so good to have now. you back. Yeah, so where I was segueing was my story number three. Um, Citrix NetScalers are hacked via yeah. a critical vulnerability. And so this, this is a, in a, a series of vulnerabilities on these platforms that I track because in my day job at Eclipsium, we also have discovery of said vulnerabilities uh, and capabilities to deal with uh, these type of uh, networking appliances, as we call them. Um, or enterprise IoT, right? You've got a, a load balancer, a firewall, a whatever, a, you know, appliance, right? Um, so I don't know. I called it enterprise IoT. You seem to take issue with that that phrase. And it's okay. I'm open to debate. No, I, I, I just, uh, enterprise IoT, like, okay. I mean, that was what we used to call embedded devices, right? Right. And. I don't know. I think we're now. Do we're we still call it, them network appliance? I'm struggling with with the name too. Yeah, yeah. That's well, not that's not sexy anymore. I mean, arguably, enterprise IoT is sexy. Would that would that be EOT or like? Because mm. there's like there's the. It's not really of, IoT. I mean, like there's Internet of Medical Things, which is the IOMT, yeah. and then there's, and I think colloquially, colloquially, yeah, I think we generally refer to those as XIOT. Or, but it's not really. Is it really or I X X O T? Don't we call them peripherals? Or I think I O T has this I O T has the implication for me anyway, and I might define it differently than some people define it, of there being uh, some kind of embedded device, yep, har hardware, right, that talks to the cloud, that then also talks to your mobile app. So when when I think of I O T, I kind of put it in that 
it has those components. I'd, and I'd what, argue, is it, what does I'd, embedded device mean? I, I'd um, argue that's cloud a, that's optional. That's a weird term. For IoT. Um, yes. Yeah, Jeff, I won't discount your, your question here, but what is what is uh, embedded Larry device? And can, Larry and I can answer that. But yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I, want, I do want to come back to that. But yeah, I'd argue cloud optional. And, you know, I, I'd also, I also refer to stuff as uh, IoT adjacent. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, is, yeah. like your LED lights that are Bluetooth mm-hmm. and energy control, they don't directly connect to the internet, but they connect to an app on your phone, which is connected to the internet. Right. Which you could potentially have a pathway to automate and, and, and so forth. So, like, it's, it's IoT, but it's not directly connected to the internet. It's like once removed. Right. So, like, IoT But then you adjacent. also, it's a just question. You also have, and we sometimes use these terms interchangeably, embedded devices and embedded systems. Yep. <clears throat> Which to me, Jeff, that would be a purpose-built device whose interface doesn't have like a monitor, mouse, and keyboard. It's uh, specialized for that particular uh, device, and right. the computing system is purpose-built to solve a problem. Uh, yeah. Perfect, perfect example. Like an ATM was yes. uh, was a, a printer. Yes. You know, b- before the printer mm-hmm. was connected to your parallel port. Yep. of your computer. You had a printer, you connected to it, you need to print, you go over to that computer and you print. Then the printer got, you know, what we would now call a single board computer. It got some intelligence built into the printer with an Ethernet port right? so that it could receive print jobs over the, the network and that had an embedded computer in the printer. So... Yeah, well, that, so that may or may not be an important distinction because, like, you know, in the in the, and I know you've lived in this space, Paul, in the retail space, mm-hmm. you know, for for many years, what we think of as the point of sale, which is technically the cash register, mm-hmm. but most people call that that device where they tap or dip their card mm-hmm. the point of sale. But that for years was just connect as you, uh, you know, like the printer was connected to the serial port, right? Or a computer, yeah, maybe. Or more likely, it's a USB port, and, and it, it was a connected device. It was an ancillary item. Yep. It was not something that was directly ha- didn't have its own IP address, didn't have its own interface. It nope. was just a connected system. Yeah, the, I mean, mm-hmm. arguably, I'd still refer to that as a peripheral, unless mm-hmm. it was completely standalone and there was no other interface, like an ATM. So, I guess what a, the class that I would like to spend some time defining before we, you know, as we get into story number three, is. What is the t- more traditional like network appliance, right? Is it, it could be a firewall, it could be a load balancer. And these are the devices that I'm, I'm referencing and going to talk about well, in a uh, webinar next week. Depending on how far back you go, firewall, router, switch. Right. I mean, those were the first um, network devices. Right. So they, yeah, they network device, network devices and or network appliances. Mm-hmm. Well, I got I caution because there really was a product called net from a, te- a product called Network Appliance that was a right. manifest yeah. server. Yep. Yeah, it was a company <laughs> called Network fast. Appliances, and they sold yes. network. But it still it still meets, meets the definition, by the way. It it, it does it, it does. Yeah, yeah I guess we need to work on the terminology. So, yeah. uh, these are Cisco uh, Citrix rather Netscaler instances were hacked via a vulnerability the interesting thing i uh they, they jumped on me in this article was um it was an automated thing putting web shells on them but the adversary can execute arbitrary commands with this web shell even when a net scaler is patched and or rebooted which i thought was well, interesting i huh? mean i can, let me take a stab at a definition of terms 
as we jump into this article because um, this is something that's changed in in PCI 4.0. You know, PCI used to talk about the firewall mm. and and routers and and you know part of the evolution of technology is in the old days those were separate physical hardware devices mm-hmm. that had actual cables connecting things. So yep. you could see like here's my border router and it goes to the internet via a cable and then there's the firewall and then there's the dmz which is where i have you know certain servers and then there's another router or a firewall router firewall router you know so there's a lot of different devices to me a network appliance is when the technology evolves so all that functionality is happening in happening in a first a single appliance or a single device and now more often than not it's you know, especially in the cloud, it, it's just software that's performing right, those right. tasks. But, you know, so, uh, you know, PCI now refers to network appliances or network devices. I forget the exact term off the top of my head. And they've abandoned the whole firewall router mm-hmm. switch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and now, see, here's here's the deal. I mean, we used to make the joke, Paul, back in the day that firewalls, firewall, servers serve, routers route. Yeah. And that they should never yeah. be compli- com- combining those. And I mean, right. and that's cool but, that I think PCI has removed that whole concept of that, and they just refer to them as network appliances. But if I think about how else I use appliance, like mm-hmm. I think about my kitchen, mm. like I have a bunch of appliances in my kitchen, and for the most part, the dishwasher washes dishes, and the blender blends, and the toaster toasts. But then you throw the air fryer that also bakes and does all this other stuff, and that's a multi-purpose. Appliance, yeah, I guess it's it's tough to get the the right terminology. Yeah, and using analogies analogies yeah. suck for all of these, right? Um, so net scalers they don't it, suck; they just break down at some point. I mean, well, unless your vacuum's appliance, because then that sucks. It does. It should <laughs> anyway. Should, um, yep. but these anyway. are load balancer uh, appliances, largely that we're sure. referencing uh, in the, in this particular uh, research mm-hmm. and. The, it caught me that um, the uh, payloads, if you will, executed when the Netscaler is patched and or rebooted. And I was like, wait, yeah, I've seen this before. I'm like, Nate Warfield did the research on this. I know because I edited this blog post with, I helped, I helped him, uh, I was just an editor on the blog post. I had nothing to do with the research. It was all Nate's uh, original research. So I stuck the link in there to Nate's research. And then I asked Nate, I was like, wait, did the attackers who are attacking, so there's like 1,900 net scalers that remain backdoored, uh, according to this article. And I'm like, did the attackers read the article uh, from last year that Nate posted and presented on at certain conferences where Nate figured out basically that if you uh, gain access to one of these little bit, he'd showed uh, F5 and Citrix NetScalers, I believe, in the post. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, if you compromise this device, that's one thing, but I want to persist through a reboot and I want to persist through a software refresh, a software update rather. Okay. And he figured out in this post details, everything, I, it's in my story number three, uh, that you can hide in like the backups, uh, config and uh, actual backups of the appliance. Uh-huh. So you can, it, in a lot of cases, they're just a, a tarball. And so you can 
take it apart, slip your payload in there, put it in the right places so that when it, uh, if you restore that backup mm. after an upgrade, which happens automatically in a lot of these uh, appliances, you go, I want to upgrade. It actually makes a backup, applies the software upgrade, and then restores all of your config. Okay. But yep. if the attacker managed to put the hooks in the payload in that okay. uh, backup config, you've you're just re-owned yourself. Right. So, so if that yeah. ba- if that backup is a tarball of right. a bunch of con- text configuration files, Correct. there's no reason you couldn't conclude something out of path into one of the binary directories so that Correct. it would re-overwrite a bi- mm. binary that had already been patched. Correct. F- as far as maintaining or the just software refresh. if you had a foothold on this through some binary, your config scripts are just putting that binary back and yep. adjusting the startup script so it executes your <laughs> your, yep. your backdoor basically. Yep. Yeah. So hey, but, just to just to interject real quick because I'm anal retentive this way, I had to look it up. In 4.0, the term is network security controls, mm. not appliance. Mm. And 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 they say such as firewalls, routers, and switches. Gotcha. Load balancers would be included, but they've tried to make it a generic, all-encompassing. Right. We mean anything that does anything <laughs> to route and control the flow of traffic in a network. And I think these attacks and persistence is sometimes valid across many of these different types of devices is what Nate's research was pointing to. And now we see Mm -hmm. this attack in the wild. And I don't believe it was the same techniques that Nate was using to persist. It was different techniques being used to persist. And my fear was that, uh, I mean, this is going to happen. I don't think there's anything we can do to prevent it except not publish security research, but that that's not helpful to anyone either, is that the attackers are like, oh, that's a cool way to have a persistent backdoor on these devices. Now when I attack these devices, I'm going to use this particular technique. I think the moral of the story is you have to be aware of the attack surface on these class of devices that we're referring to and remediate these issues. Stay patched. A lot of the recent uh, like CISA KEV kind of vulnerabilities point back to a lot of the F5 and Citrix uh, Netscaler stuff. They're one of the more widely exploited uh, vulnerabilities out there. I, I often wonder, though, how how much of the uh, research <laughs> that is done into vulnerabilities and finding exploits, especially the really complex, how did they figure that out kind of stuff, is done by researchers and then later on exploited by bad guys. Yeah, it's a deli- delicate balancing act. You know, I agree we shouldn't not do it or not disclose, but mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know that goes back to you know even our early earlier uh, conversation with the interview with Jared of, of bug bounties and, and responsible disclosure and full disclosure and all that kind of stuff. But uh, you know, sometimes I think, man, this is some such. You know, such esoteric research that's been done to find this, you know, sometimes it's a very devastating vulnerability, but I'm like, I don't think the bad guys would ever take the, you know, the effort and the time involved in defining stuff like this. I, I could be wrong, of course, and APTs, nation state notwithstanding, but your run of the mill, I'm just in it to make some money kind of bad guy that's trying to, you know, do exploits with m- ransomware or whatever. I, I just don't see them having a huge research arm. If, if yeah, you know I, I mean. don't. I, I I tend to agree, Jeff. I think they're relying on a few pockets of research. I think hmm. legitimate researchers are part of that research pool. Yep. And so, like, mm-hmm. I think it would be a really cool talk to 
analyze the research in the past 20 years. Like, I don't know, you have to somehow limit it in scope and <clears throat> it would be a lot of, well, research to figure out what <laughs> research was published and then later landed into in some attacker toolkit somewhere and like have some really good, like more concrete examples of this was given at Black Hat in 2016 and then this person published another, you know, proof of concept on it in 2019. And then lo and behold, in 2020, it was found in this attacker's toolkit. I'm right. I'm positive there are examples of that, but I think how, like that would be a really cool talk. For what immediately comes, I'd say go back 10 years, because mm. uh, it's been 10 years since I started at Tenable. And shortly after I started at Tenable is when we had... Uh, I'm not going to remember them all. Shell shot all the all the logo vulnerabilities. Shell shot. Yes, yes. there was a big time for that. Yep. There's a couple others, but you know all these, especially the ones, and I forget which was which, but like the 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 bash shell when somebody discovered a yep. vulnerability that had like been there since the very beginning. Uh, you know, obviously the bad guys hadn't hadn't found that, or uh, you know, Heartbleed, or um, uh, what was the the Intel processor one. Um, melt, you know, shell shock, melt, meltdown, mm -hmm. uh, you know, specter, specter, you know, all of yeah. these things, you know, there's, a, you know, a lot of very great discoveries of things that have been there since the very beginning. We were talking in the previous segment about there's always going to be bugs and vulnerabilities in software, whether it's software or firmware embedded or not. Um, but you know, every time one of these devastating ones comes out, I'm like, yeah, but well, you know, this is devastating, but. I don't think anybody knew about it until you you discovered it. So, shh, is 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 sort of my knee knee jerk reaction sometimes. Yeah, I think you know that'd be another interesting kind of study to see what uh, research has been done solely by attackers, and we only discovered it because you know we did forensics and in incident you know in the incident response process, uh, we discovered that certainly happened. Um, Stuxnet is one is one case of that, but it's almost a bad example because mm -hmm. it was more it was a nation state attack, um, and you know I think that's a that's certainly a class of attacks. Uh, one example that does come to mind was a couple weeks ago, Jeff, when we were talking about so those researchers that uh, presented at Black Hat Europe uh, from Berlin, and they were the same. One of them was the same researchers that presented at Black Hat this year about hacking the Tesla. Uh, we talked about mm -hmm. it a couple of weeks ago. And what I was able to figure out was that at Black Hat Europe 2021, they discovered a um, uh, a vault, uh, a voltage um, uh, injection. Glitching attack. Voltage, voltage fault injection glitching. attack. It's a glitching. Glitching, attack. glitching attack in AMD processors. Their research mm -hmm. this year at Black Hat was applying that attack to the AMD CPUs that were used in the Tesla, effectively the ECU, I believe, inside of the Tesla runs this, uh, or portion of the Tesla runs the CPU. Um, and the system that runs on that CPU uh, controls the uh, updates to your Tesla. So some Teslas, if you buy them, you have the heated seats, but it's software to unlock the heated seats because you got to pay for it. Yep. And mm. so they figured out they could use the voltage fault injection, which they discovered previously was their research, and they just applied that and refined their research to have a practical real-world yep. attack that, again, in this case, is attacking a product that the consumer, I mean, owns is a 
right. overloaded term here, right? Yeah, but this is a good example. So I, I, I think Larry referred to it as a glitching attack. So it's a, it's a, a category of attack. Was it first discovered by bad guys and we discovered it because of exploits or did researchers mm. no, discover it? Researchers and, and, and the right. bad guys figured out ways to exploit Well, in this case, it's researchers figured out how to make it how to make it how to apply it and make it practical Practical. yes and by practical they mean being able to control the cpu that controls the installation of software uh or or licensing on your test they glitched it to get the key so they could either get the key so they can enable it on other devices it was to get the key yeah but that's one of the arguments or talking points you know for you know, it, it certainly wasn't a theme this year at Black Hat, but in recent past, you know, the whole idea of vulnerability prioritization, you know, the the concept of MITRE attack framework, you know, what are we, you know, okay, there's all these vulnerabilities, but what are we really seeing exploited? I mean, somehow this feeds into that. Yeah, and uh, but the, the uh, CISA KEV, known exploited vulnerabilities, I mm-hmm. think is a great project that does that. And like I said, if you're the owner of Citrix NetScaler devices, <laughs> you definitely need to go read the CISA KEV and uh, apply some patches because they're actively oh. being exploited. And again, I, to my knowledge, the, to your point, Jeff, like these are these are the vulnerabilities and exploits don't require like a huge amount of security research, right? In fact, it's more likely that a patch was produced or someone else disclosed the vulnerability and then bad actors are using that uh, in their campaigns. Lee's got to come but in do you, but do you, But do you evaluate it and respond to it and, and do something about it as a user organization that's you know, using whatever the, you know, whatever the product or application is in question? Do you, do you not do anything until it's being exploited and, and, okay, now we need to act? Or do you try to be proactive? And when and how and what criteria do you use to make that decision? Well, that's well, the question. Looks, that's the question, uh, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it is. So Lee, Lee's got a comment in here. Go ahead, Lee. So, so, so there's, there's really there's, – there's, there's, there's a two-step thing you've got to do here. First, one, you've got to patch. But number two, you've got to grab that tool from Mandy and to check and see if you've been atta- right. uh, hacked or not. Right. If you don't know, and I'm a funny feeling that if you are, if you have been hacked, you're going to be doing a factory reset on that device to get rid of the configuration that's now bored. It's just going to say, don't forget to back up your config. Yes. But if you don't run the Mandian tool and discover that you're, you're, you've been hacked or you're, you're vulnerable to it, then you don't have a problem. It's like, you know, mm. I don't, I didn't test positive for COVID after. Uh, you know, hacker summer camp, like so many people did, because I haven't tested. I did actually test, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, moving along. Yeah, move along. Where do we want to go? Oh, some. Uh, I was gonna go to like stuff that you should definitely patch. Uh, Everything. Avanti Avalanche, thirty thousand organizations. Like this was. All over the cybersecurity news uh, this week. So there are multiple flaws. Uh, it's an enterprise mobile device management solution used by thirty thousand organizations. Um, there was uh, collectively vulnerabilities being tracked to CVE twenty twenty three thirty two five sixty stack based buffer overflows in Avanti Avalanche. Uh, it's a service that runs on Windows. This was discovered by Tenable. Um, 
And uh, yeah, it's uh, attackers are actively using that in the wild now. So if you have that, you should definitely patch. To Jeff's point, you probably should have patched as soon as the patch was available, not after someone was bad actors are exploiting it. That's the that's the tricky part is knowing what to patch. It's the rub, isn't it, Jeff? I there's no Well, it I mean, is the rub and and you know, most of my clients over the years, they're only going to respond to the, you know, critical high risk findings from a scan, you know, a Nessus scan or whatever. So you know, it does beg the question: What was the what was the CVS? It was nine point eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you should patch that. You should patch that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You should patch that. That's maybe in the patch that. Yeah, you should maybe, maybe patch that. Oh. Well, you should mitigate it. Maybe it's not a patch. Maybe it's a configuration. Maybe it's a workaround. You know, but mm-hmm. you should remediate it, mitigate it, if there's a difference in those terms. Uh, go to some hardware stuff uh, briefly, Larry. Uh, Lora, how do you pronounce that? Lora. Lora, right? Yeah. Because it's long range. range. Yep. Uh, what's the acronym stand for? Long range. It's just just long range. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, the, to the best of my knowledge, yeah, long, long range. It's a it's a really uh, and it's uh, not a it's not a mesh. I don't want to use the word. I think it's French though. It's la, la, Lora. 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 You know. There's this guy who did a SANS class who incorporated in this material. We should get him on the show and talk about it. Mm. Yeah, we totally should. Oh, wait, that's me. <laughs> it seems all the rage. Hey, Larry, <laughs> you're on the show. <laughs> hey, look it at seems that. all the rage lately. Is that it's it's been come it's been um, you know an up and coming rising star in a wireless protocol for okay. a lot of IoT stuff. Um, for a couple of reasons, it's a good competitor to something like five G mm-hmm. in that we can get a shit ton of distance out of it but really cheap and not necessarily reliant on like a mobile network operator. Um, long distance cheap, but it uh, as, a, as an alternative to 5G, mm. 5G bandwidth is pretty damn impressive. Mm-hmm. But for IoT, you typically don't need that kind of bandwidth. I you, see. You need short messaging mm-hmm. for status updates and, and some of those types of things. And that's really where LoRa excels. It's inexpensive. It's very long range. There was a, a badge slow, a badge hacking <laughs> competition or some some of the that used the LoRa equipment. They're trying to see them on conference could, or could badges be. that people are building. Yeah, could be. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Darknet Project was one yep. of those that uses LoRa. Because you can build a, a badge and they can talk to each other, or do you mm-hmm. need a central? They can talk to each other. Okay. They can a- talk and to they each. can, uh, and I want to say they can do a star topology. Okay. So they can connect to one or multiple aggregation points that can then relay data to the in- internet through a through a network of things. Yeah, like there were some folks network. on Mastodon talking about uh, that. I we mentioned Laura on on the show recently. Uh, and I sent you those links, Larry. I yep, put them in the did. Uh, in the chat, and it looked like there was a like a GoFundMe kind of project. What do you yep. call it? I forget what it was. Uh, uh, it's in there. Kickstarter. Yeah, Kickstarter. Thank you. And then someone else commented on the Kickstarter thing and says that just looks like a Lily Go, blah blah blah. Yep. And the Lily Go looks like a transceiver <clears throat> for Laura. Good, good transceiver. That means it transmits and, and receives. receives. It yep, is, uh, yeah, it was um, an ESP32 and Laura V21, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Looks like pretty cool. Yeah, so the, the LilyGo ones are pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, you're typically using them for some sort of long-range communication, small messaging service. Mm-hmm. Uh, like one of the ones that I envisioned was I picked up a bunch of these and they've got uh, like uh, lower mesh and a few of those. Like you can put all so you these. You can mesh them, yeah. You could mesh them together effectively and um, you connect to it with your phone over Bluetooth, Bluetooth mm-hmm. low energy as a serial device. And then you can use an app on your phone to send messages. Oh, so it's like okay. it's like off grid text messaging. Yep. Okay. Type of thing. I mean, you're not going to tie this to a back end service and go surf YouTube because right. the, the speed the, of Laura speed, is point okay. three k to like five. So it's k. really it's, just to send messages. Is the I got gotcha. you. Yep. But up to five kilometers away. Yes. So neat, well, sort of off grid, you know, alternative network that can be tied to the internet for small. Excuse me. What's messaging. five kilometers in real measurement? Uh, 3.3 miles. Three miles. Uh, that'd be 3.1 miles. 3.1 miles. All right. Give or take. Yeah. See, I was 3.3. I always try to do 3.3 miles on the treadmill so I can oh. say I can do a 5K. <laughs> so my wife did a 5K on the weekend. That's how come I know it's 3.1. All right. Well, I've been just an overachiever then. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, another really cool, you know, I wish... LoRa devices were more common because one of the things I wanted to do in this neighborhood is we've got uh, sprinkler timers that are all discrete. There's not a two-wire system talking them all together. And putting in an 802.11 network is kind of a bugger, but LoRa is the right kind of bandwidth and coverage. Mm-hmm. If they were just freaking controllers that were speaking LoRa, hmm. it would make it really simple. Yeah. And it's like I said, low bandwidth IoT devices, hell. Yeah, I, I mean, I bet you could use one of these Lily Go type of things, Paul. Like you and I were talking mm-hmm. before the show about using some of these cheap yeah, chips. Yeah, from a garage door. For yeah. like your garage door that you could do like, oh my God, it's so easy to work with. And uh, and arguably some of these devices that have the lower chipset built in are super easy to work with um, in very similar types of fashion to build LoRa networks and, and so forth. And even tying them to the cloud with the things network and so forth. Um so I bet, Lee, that would be really something easily to do, that you could send synchronization for those timers and all that, sprinklers and all that stuff. So everybody mm-hmm. water, waters their lawn at the same time so the paper boy can't go anywhere without getting wet. Mm. <clears throat> cool. Sync, sync the sprinklers to music. That would be a good project. Oh. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, su- super neat stuff. I'm not necessarily sold on this Kickstarter project that you sent? Because I'm still trying to figure out what the... Yeah, yeah, the Kickstarter one was kind of weird. I mean, like, I'm not sure. Like, it looked cool that there's a USB and a USB-C lower. Like, you can give me an adapter right in my computer that I can send data on a lower network with. That's kind of cool. But I'm not sure what the purpose of it being connected to Wi-Fi mm. is unless that's supposed to be an upstream to the cloud. Mm-hmm. And on one of those, they did mention the Things Network, which is one of those basically cloud services that allows you to do aggregation of messaging and so forth mm. and mm. application servers and, and all that type of stuff. So, I mean, I guess, yeah. And arguably that would probably be cheaper than some of the Things Network hubs. So, hmm. I mean, neat still. Yeah, neat, neat stuff. Mm-hmm. Anyway, also neat, uh, my story number one, you can speed up Nmap by 16x. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you reduce the number of targets by 16 times. Well, so this... <laughs> Yes, that. But this is specifically speeding up the service scanning, where Nmap oh. is identifying the the service. And there's a great post uh, by uh, Joshua Rogers wrote this post. Great post. It basically comes down to this one thing. Um, you should read the whole article. But like, if you just want to know the, you should want to know the one thing. The one thing. This one is, thing that'll drive you crazy. The one thing is you can set. I think it's L set timeout function in NSE underscore sock dot cc. Set it to a maximum of 500 milliseconds. You're basically adjusting the timeout for all of your service uh, scanning. Now, you, my take on this is you're, you might not be as accurate. I believe the Nmap team is setting these timeouts like you would if you're ma- I mean, you're making software that uh, all kinds of different people are going to use mm-hmm. for all kinds of different purposes. So you want to set a timeout value that's going to work across all those Great. different use cases yeah. the best without uh, sacrificing accuracy. If you're really into speed and you don't care about some of the you know timeouts uh, happening prematurely, then you go set this and uh, you can speed things up. Again, you're kind of going against what the project put in there. But again, for your use case, uh, it was kind of a, a little uh, tour of some Nmap uh, internals. Yep. Uh, yeah, it looks like one of, one, it's, one of those timeouts was set between six and 7,000 milliseconds. Right. Where he's recommending mm-hmm. to set it between 500 or below. Mm-hmm. And that makes a difference somewhere along the way. It's funny you mentioned Nmap because I, I was saying during our, I think it was before we went on air. I have a, I I'm I'm reading the Phoenix Project finally, and one of the main characters, without spoilers, the guy that is the go-to guy in the company, go-to uh, that guy. knows, that knows how everything works and knows how everything gets done. His name is Brent. Um, I, I've, I've been working with a client this week doing interviews, virtual interviews, and have been talking about the Phoenix project. And, uh, I interviewed a guy today and when they said, when they, you know, when they first introduced him, like, well, he's the guy that knows the answers to everything. I said, Oh, so he's, he's Brent. And they're like, well, yeah, kind of, um, the, the guy that I was talking to, I won't say his name. But he actually mentioned Nmap today as we were chatting, and he's credited with one of the optimization features. I won't say what it is, but he's you know wherever the credits are and, and the acknowledgments that Fyodor has in Nmap, he's in there. Nice. So a, a strange little we're all connected, we're all related here. It's a small family. Nice. Yeah, it, 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 so Jeff, is the PCI is PCI mentioned in the Phoenix project at all? It, I, I'm a third of the way through the book and it's been mentioned twice and they've mentioned, and I, I have a bone to pick with Gene Kim cause they refer to the, you know, we're, we're expecting the PCI auditors to show up in, in, in a month or something like that. That's one of the many things that they have to deal with. So yes, it's mentioned and it's not mentioned correctly. And I have yet to, to see whether that was deliberate or not. So should it be a I, PCI threat risk or vulnerability? It's funny. I, I, I <laughs> this is my this is my ribbing Jeff section. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I I, I advise a, another co- yet another company where the the uh, CEO was asking me a question today about PCI and and isn't you know isn't having to meet a PCI requirement a risk? I'm like, uh, no. <laughs> doing, <laughs> doing security should never be considered risk. You know, or doing some security. Yeah, it's just a cost center. It's just a cost of doing business. But you know, rib on, Larry. I'll take it. I know you will. Speaking of PCI, though, my story number four: <clears throat> finding flaws in an ATM software tool. 
This comes from the folks at Synac, and I would I would imagine this would be in scope for for PCI. I mean, depending on level merchant, put that aside for a moment. But this is software. Uh, let's see how they describe it because I was not familiar with this software, which is called Scrutus Web. Oh, sounds like you should get that checked by a doctor. <laughs> Scrotum? <laughs> if you got some scrutus, you got a little scrutus, you need to put some cream on that. Yeah, put it on the web. Part. Um, but the uh, the Synac Red Team found, so the discovery uh, in Scrutus Web, a secure solution for monitoring banking in retail ATM fleets. And um, the Scrutus Web gives you the capability to reboot or shut down a terminal, retrieve information, monitoring the card reader at ATMs, sending and receiving files to ATMs, modifying data remotely on ATMs. When this software was analyzed, given its purpose and function, I was kind of taken back as to, let's just say the ridiculous nature of the vulnerabilities on here. Like these web application vulnerabilities are... Uh, let's just say not very sophisticated, uh, as in the entire JavaScript for the entire site is uh, downloaded. So uh, the web server was sending an exceptionally large 23 megabyte JavaScript file to visitors. A what now? Uh, yes. 23 megabyte? 23 meg, yes. Great, so they pushed all the functionality client side. Awesome. Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. pretty much. And so they so, parsed through this uh, said JavaScript and found a lot of things like command injection mm -hmm. like leaked account information about all the users on the system <laughs> and i mean it kind of progresses pretty quickly to uh really uh they, they're able to uh, at this point we're able to log in uh screw web as the administrator yeah so kind my of first question ahead, and i don't know if you guys know the answer to this because it's a term they use synac what what exactly is a retail atm that's Let alone a retail you know, a ATM great. fleet. So I would argue that, uh, so there's a bunch, and, and I'm speculating here, uh, sure. that you can go buy your own ATM, and you can buy a whole herd of them and have a fleet, and you mm -hmm. can work with local businesses to put an ATM in a retail establishment. Like I think about our local pizza place, they don't, Take, right, they don't take the, credit cards. So I could approach them and say, hey, man, can I put my ATM in your pizza place? Right. Your so be, that would be a retail ATM. ATM. Yep. Right. Or mm -hmm. what? what's the convenience store up in Rhode Island? Cumberland Cloverland, Farms. Scumbies. Um, Cumberland Farms. 7-Eleven, Circle K, whatever. Yep. Yeah. All those. All these places have ATMs and they're at a retail location. Yep. But uh, has nothing to do with PCI. A ATM networks are completely separate uh mm -hmm. you know from from mm -hmm. traditional anything else so you know it, it you know it's easy to well you use retail so it must be pci related but it's not really i mean well, I, it says I, here jeff atm fleets can include sensitive equipment like check deposit machines as well as payment terminals in a restaurant chain that's kind of interesting Wow. Say it again? Yeah. I see yeah. what you're saying though. An ATM is not PCI, not dealing with PCI because yeah, I mean, you're yeah. not. So yeah. you can so you can pay with a debit card. Yes, but that's different from an ATM, and it's and, and it's a different uh, you know on the back end in, in terms of you know actually moving the money around. It's a completely different network. Mm. Uh, it's a completely different process. It's a completely different set of protocols, and ATM 
networks are notoriously not looked at uh, and, and, and tremendously insecure. Interesting. Uh, especially, which, especially when these are not managed by some of the large banks like right. Bank of America or wherever. Oh, right. Because when I think of a retail ATM, it's typically not my bank-branded ATM right. machine. It's some No, other, it's like Joe's ATM. It's the gray machine with the... Yeah, yeah. Yep. But, I mean, there's even a difference in... If you go to a grocery store or a convenience store and you're paying with a debit card and you're using it effectively as a credit card, you know, in as much as you don't have to enter a PIN, so you're using your debit card as a credit card, mm -hmm. that's one distinct transaction flow. And that's different from if you're using it as, uh, no, I'm really going to debit, you know, I'm just paying for it from my bank account. I'm using it as a debit card and I have to enter my PIN in order to complete the transaction. And that's even <laughs> different from, it's more related, but it's still different from your, you're using your debit card to pay for something and you want to get a little bit of cash back. Yeah. Those are different transaction mm -hmm. flows. Those are different data flows mm -hmm. that go to different places on the back end. And, and PCI is only really concerned about using a payment card, a debit or credit card for a, you know, for paying for the goods and services. Mm. And yeah. And it, my other kind of concern with this is like the vendor says that they've fixed the vulnerabilities, but my mm -hmm. degree of confidence in this software is somewhat eroded due to the, the nature and <coughs> presence of these vulnerabilities is indicative of a company that's created software and is, not paid attention to security. And I don't want to be hypercritical and pick on any one company, but that's that's just my gut feeling. Like I wouldn't have mm -hmm. be comfortable with this software in in my environment. Given well, and that, I, one of my questions was who's using it. In other words, I suspect a piece of software like this isn't going to be run by the 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 big banks running their ATMs. In fact, I suspect it's not involved with the through all APMs we're used to at our yeah, banks or credit yeah. unions. Yeah, this, this is, is like the independent third parties. right? Yeah, the ones you saw at the fairgrounds, the, yes. as you said, the the convenience store, or the wherever. But they still have money in them. Oh yeah, no, it's, right? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, it's not a, a big bank kind of. They probably have different crappy software to manage their ATMs. <laughs> Those use cases are a little lower on the over. <coughs> excuse me, overhead. They're running a little leaner. Yeah, so they would. They wouldn't have as much to spend on a on a secure management system. I got to be careful. I don't want to throw them under the bus. But yeah, yeah. Well, no, it is, doesn't. Diebold make uh, ATMs mostly for large banks, and I would assume mm -hmm. that if you are a large bank and you've got tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of ATMs, mm -hmm. that when you buy those from a Diebold, Diebold gives you management software that that comes along that comes along with it. It's under a lot of scrutiny, but this is more for the smaller networks of ATMs and now I got I bought these ATMs now I got to manage them so I can go to this third party and get the management software so what it feels is what it feels like to me Lee, based on your right. observations as well your big modern through wall ATM with all the bells and whistles runs about 80 grand mm -hmm. the uh, small little one that you see like in the mall that's standing there that uses a a cellular connection those yeah. are about 14 gotcha big difference they might even cheaper than that. Well, and and frankly, in my um, PCI experience, when I go to a, 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 a retail location, are you listening, Paul? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, you know, very briefly. Um, 
you know, you go to a typical Walmart or, or Kohl's or Target or BJ's or Costco or whatever, you know, there, there's lots of different machines out there in front. Uh, you know, uh, there's an ATM machine. There's a lottery Redundant. machine. There's a Western Union machine. Uh, you know where you, you know you can do a you know do a Western Western Union money transfer. There's a you know, in, the question, in the Cumberland Farms, Jeff. There's a cryptocurrency machine. Right. I mean, all of those things typically in a retail environment uh, are either they're they're directly connected by cellular or mm-hmm. sometimes they're satellite. You know, Redbox is mm-hmm. you know they're still around. And, you know, I always ask the question when I show up at a retail site: Are they connected to your network? Mm-hmm. Because because if they are, you're not only a merchant, you're a service provider because you're you're providing, you're providing the throughput. Uh, and but very often, especially you know, lottery machines, that's another big mm-hmm. one. Very often, they're on either dedicated connections, they're on separate VLANs or WANs, and they're mm-hmm. logically separated. the The retailer might provide the the it might be the ISP essentially, but very often, more often than not, especially Redbox, you'll see the little antenna on top. Yep, yeah. They're directly mm-hmm. connected either by satellite or by cellular, and so they're they're not part of the scope. Uh, here's where that word comes up from our from our previous discussion with Jared, but they're not in scope for PCI from the retailer's perspective because they're logically separated. Yeah, I want to say in, in lottery networks, if I recall from working for a lottery company, it was all the stuff was separate. I mean, it depended on mm-hmm. like how they were separated specifically yep. depended on which lottery state or country was running the the lottery. Yeah, but there was. Um, was actually involved with the design process for some of the sites and it's exactly as you you state Jeff like there was completely separate networks for all of these functions and the lottery network anything that touched the lottery network was set it was even separation within the lottery network for different types of communications for different types of right. lotteries whether you had you know you had scratch tickets you had Kino you had uh, the actual drawing a lot of times there was separation between that and it was very very tightly controlled especially the big drawing kind of uh, networks, like what had access to the, back then it was like a VMS computer that, that determined what the, I don't know if that determined what the still winning is. number is. It still is. I don't still even is. think it's they told still us. Still like, I, even like working there as an employee, I don't think you weren't privy right. to exactly how like winning numbers were, were pulled. You didn't want that information actually. E- 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 you, didn't way, want, you didn't want it. <clears throat> either way, now I got to go to Cumbies and get a coffee, some scratches and a, and some cryptocurrency and some, and some bitcoin yeah exactly well i put it out there on my well, so my social networks though the cryptocurrency machine uh-huh. uh was stuck on an ubuntu boot up screen oh that's what that was from <laughs> that, that was a cryptocurrency machine in the cumbies yeah. uh, any exposed usb but, ports you know, i didn't i didn't, more likely, I didn't like go sniffing around for that the more so. likely suspects i mean what, your grocery store up there that i always go to to get stuff for the bars stop and shop you know they have a bakery they yep. have a florist. They might have a caterer. Uh, they might have a Starbucks in the front. Um, More like a donkeys. They they become service providers yeah. if those are all separate merchants and and you know they have their own merchant ID and they're they're doing their own processing and they're and they're riding on the corporate network. They're related. Sometimes they use the same point of sale systems. Very often the Starbucks, it's more like a licensing thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're 
they're allowed to say they're Starbucks, but if you've ever tried to go to a, a Starbucks at a grocery store and try to use your Starbucks card, they're like, oh, well, we can't use that because mm. they're not really a Starbucks. Oh, I see. Uh, it's just a licensing yeah. agreement. Yeah. So they're, so they're responsible for the point of sale for it because yep. it's, they're, they're just licensing the Starbucks brand, essentially. Right. Anyway, move, moving along. Moving along. Uh, uh, I'm still curious as to what a, a, a retail ATM actually is. Uh, I might have to ask somebody from Synac what that means. Sure. Let's talk about WinRAR. Let's. Yeah. A lot we could say about. I was. I'm still astonished that shareware like still exists. Is it share? It's not really shareware. Is it? Is WinRAR? Do they? But it's not. It's not really. It's not really free. Because you they're, should. They're licensing it, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. I in the article that I was reading, it said that you had to pay for it. This is an article from the register. Yep, you can buy or download WinRAR. But the download, according to the register article, was... Uh, so it says, WinRAR is a shareware product, which means anyone can download and use the product for free for up to 40 days before purchasing. I think mm -hmm. you are correct on that. Yeah, so shareware is trial soft is what we would call a trial, trial, a free, a free trial. trial. It's a yeah, free trial. it's a free trial. I remember we used to deliver Stan's courseware with RAR files that we would then unload with a, a trial copy of WinRAR or equivalent. Mm -hmm. Right, it's been a bit. And so WinRAR has a vulnerability, and attackers have been going after like large financial firms. Specifically targeting them with these uh, with these vulnerabilities, CVE twenty twenty three forty four seven seven, lack of full validation for user supplied data when opening an archive file that could result in memory access beyond the end of an allocated buffer. I love Whoops. how I love how we come up with like like twenty seven <laughs> different ways to say what a buffer overflow, overflow is. Yeah, that, that's that's so somewhat of a new one for me. Is memory access improved. beyond the end of an allocated buffer? I like it. I like it. In any way, in any case, uh, so we got this uh, buffer overflow vulnerability in WinRAR. It's being targeted against financial institutions. WinRAR has to produce a fix. Most people don't pay for WinRAR. You just, I don't know what you do. I don't know because I use Linux and there's utilities in Linux that are free. They probably also have vulnerabilities, but that's beside the point to <laughs> decompress the files. And, uh, so licenses are $29 for a single computer, but are perpetual, at least for the version of WinRAR you get at the time of purchase. Interesting. In any case, yeah. I was kind of enamored with this point that I wanted to discuss a little bit. Microsoft announced back in May that it was adding support for RAR files into Windows along with support for other archive formats, including TAR, 7-zip, GZ and others, thanks to the addition of the lib archive open source library. Okay, so they're using the same thing that basically Linux is using, right? Uh, open source libraries, mm -hmm. uh, but presumably only for Windows 11. Uh, Revan had native support for zip files since the last century when Windows 98 debuted. So the yeah. question is, who do you trust with these? Is it are we better off? Did Win 98, 98 really come out in the 90s? Uh now you're gonna make me look it up, Jeff. I well, do. It came out I'm last curious. century. No, it did. It well, did. And while, while you're while you're looking that up, uh, I'm looking at the Wikipedia entry for WinRAR. Uh, and WinRAR, Wikipedia says that the license is distributed as try before you buy. 
um, and also says that it is license of trialware. So Windows 98 came out on June 25th, 1998. 98. 98. Okay. 98. Yes. They actually released it the year it was named after. <laughs> that's, that's. And what about Windows stellar. 95? I'm, I'm pretty sure 95, <laughs> maybe it came out in 95, but 2000, when did it come out? It's like 2000. And then they, oh, and then they, no, 2003. 95 came out August 24th, 1995. Uh-huh. Okay. What about Windows 2000? When did, when, 2000, when did it come out? February 17th, 2000. What? That's 2003. No. February. Uh, yeah. The public could then, buy the full version of Windows 2000 on February 17th, 2000. Oh. So there. Now that we got, we, we all set. What about Windows 7? <laughs> no, 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 no. Set Windows 7? 2007. No, I'm kidding. Oh, my God. It wasn't 2007. No, you don't have to do that one. I, but now I have so, to be. 2009. Okay, so. Yeah, so anyway. they at some point they abandoned the 2007 because they missed, the, back they missed to, their Back to raw files <laughs> and Windows. Do you think the operating system should provide some of these utilities rather than rely on third-party software? Uh, one could argue PDF viewing uh, would fall in, in this category. It's debatable because the usability... And features that you get between, you know, Adobe and what is built in the operating system may differ. Sure. I don't know. I mean, my Mac has preview. I can view PDFs right. on that for free. Well, right. I, mean, right. I paid for the Mac, right? right. So they put, they, so they, these vendors put out the freeware versions to entice people to ultimately, hopefully, buy the paid versions. Do they, do they need to support the free versions? Well, no, I, the, I question is, the, question the question is, well, no, the question I'm asking is, do we benefit security-wise by Microsoft including the functionality of the third-party app in the operating system? In other words, if Microsoft includes the functionality to decompress raw files in the operating system, conceivably it eliminates the need to purchase and or acquire through any kind of methods including piracy, WinRAR as a third-party utility yeah. to do it. Security-wise, where are we better off? Are we better off having Microsoft I, in control of this particular functionality rather than leaving it to an independent third-party software company? I think the answer is yes and no. I, I think leave. it's yes because Microsoft has gotten a legit version of their library and they're probably keeping it updated. Right. We heard from Jared but on then, Microsoft. like mm-hmm. they're, they're serious about security. We've Signific- covered it on the significantly show. Significantly more like, eyes. Significantly right. Yeah, more. but that's, that's where Jared might say, well, that wasn't, you know, somebody reports a bug related to it, to WinRAR, and, and he might say, well, that's not in scope for whatever right, the rationale. That was, the, that was my flip side, is if they don't, if they're not updating that library. Right. The main thing I remember, and it's not with WinRAR, but remember a few years ago, there were a lot of versions of 7-Zip that were all jacked up floating around, and people yep. were getting... You know, malware trying to find 7-Zip, whereas if it's just there, you avoid that use case, which I think is better for the users to have a legitimate version of it. Now, it still might be flawed, but at least you've got the legit flawed version, if that makes sense. Yep. Now, now, so I, I would argue similar to Lee, but on the converse, both yes and no. Yes, great. It's already built in. I don't have to go get a third party. And that third party, in this case of Microsoft, is a really large entity that is doing a good job of managing security and responding to mm-hmm. and has good developers and, and those types of things. 
Uh, and there's also then becomes this really large entity that is responsible for fixing it when there's a problem. Right. As opposed to WinRAR. Like, how many employees does WinRAR have? What does their security program look like? Uh, you know, but maybe, also in the Microsoft, I mean, I'll make maybe, an argument for the, the Microsoft being included in Microsoft Windows is it, the fix will come down via Windows Update. Yep. And I don't have to then patch a third-party application. Right. But then now we have the problem. Now I would argue we have the Internet Explorer problem where we ship a web browser right. with every version of Windows and, well, now we have a monopoly. Right. Well, right. Actually, right. Yeah, because it would put, win it could conceivably, you bring up a great point, Larry. It's my thought, too, is if Microsoft in is including this functionality in Windows 11, mm -hmm. WinRAR's market share goes goes bye-bye mm -hmm. unless well, they start creating versions where if I use the software to create the compressed file, I need that software to decompress it. But now you're in a cat and mouse game, right? That's, <clears throat> I mean, I've not had to decompress a RAR file in some time. Well, you the, probably have, but you did it on Linux and you used a, a built-in. You yeah, you went app get install something. Yeah, I don't RAR. remember what I yeah, uh, on RAR. Yeah, is it on? It's either you including it's including so, your distribution or you app get or whatever install it. Yeah, Lee, uh, I had a little different spin on what you're thinking, Larry, and that is. Think of more of the preview versus Acrobat or Acrobat Pro. Preview will display the PDF, but you can do a heck of a lot more with Adobe's product with your PDF. Sure. Right. So they they have a differentiator, and so for basic functionality, who cares? Use yeah. the use the freebie that comes in the OS, but you're going to have to put something sexy in your product and that it does, and then that'll sell. Yep. You want to start annotating a PDF? You got to do that with Acrobat. Can you the in Windows yeah. 11? Can you create a raw file Ooh. or just decompress it? Would be Ooh. another differentiator where WinRAR is like, no, you need our product because if you're going to create a raw file, that's you need our product. That's a great mm. question. Does the open source, you know, that begs the question: Does the open source library let you create a raw file? Hmm. And then it you get into the compatibility the things. You know, like what one raw file created here? Can you decompress that with the free version or the paid version, or do you need the later version of the paid version to to do yep. this? You start getting into compatibility issues. Excuse zip. Is it is it is it the appropriate terminology to say protocol to say what creates a RAR file in the first place is a language a protocol? It's a, an algorithm. I would call it an algorithm. An algorithm like middle is, is middle that, out compression. It's, who yeah. who owns that algorithm? What's the source of the algorithm? Is the algorithm itself open source? Or is it uh, in the case of WinRAR, excellent question. I'm not up on uh, my compression uh, algorithms. I, I want to say that um, I didn't do enough research for this article. Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I didn't. I didn't mean to stump you. No, our, but our I, listeners. But, I, are but good. I think the answer to many done of our a disservice to our listeners by is, not knowing is all dependent the on on what the nature of the algorithm is and who owns the algorithm and who is taking. You know, if it's an open source freeware algorithm. Uh, so you know. the internet says RAR uses proprietary compression algorithms and the compression ratio is stored in the compression record tag in the file header. RAR used optional CRC32 hash values until RAR 5 when the method switched to 256 Blake 2. Yes. So if it's, it's proprietary, who owns it? Uh, WinRAR. Yep. WinRAR is the, the owner. Okay. Or whoever they, owns they, Win, uh, uh, There's probably a parent... Uh, company yeah so oh so here it is right here uh in the license terms on wikipedia although archiving with the rar format is proprietary uh 
Right. RAR Labs supplies, supplies as copyrighted freeware the C++ source code use of the current uh, Unrar Unpacker, mm. allowing ah. to be used in any software, thus enabling others to produce software capable of unpacking, right. but not creating. So creating is proprietary, but yes. unpacking. unpacking it. Un, uh, you know, Microsoft probably didn't pay the licensing fee in Windows 11 to pay WinRAR. And can you imagine? Yeah, every time you sell Windows 11, you're including the capability to create RAR files. Therefore, you have to pay us a fee. I don't see Microsoft. So is, is, that's a bad is business the, decision. <laughs> is the vulnerability in question related to the the packing or the unpacking? I think it, it's triggered when you unpack a file with mm. WinRAR doesn't necessarily answer the question though is is the vulnerability in the packing or the unpacking um unpacking so you're asking really hard yeah. questions on this it's, it's, in, <laughs> it's in the unpacking that's, that's my when job you go to yeah, crack when, them. Uh, run when <laughs> files are opened right it's the that's unpacking the unpacking <clears throat> triggers okay. the buffer overflow yeah, which would make so sense. It, so it yeah. squarely falls into the category of open source, which means Microsoft or whomever mm, really not, technically I, shouldn't be on the hook. I would argue also not open source because it is yeah licensed C according to non the, un, the like, unpacking. I mean, what yep. you know, what do you I call bet you it? need like it's, a non free Linux given repository, away for free. right? To get the to get mm, the it, source just because it's, it's given away for free doesn't mean it's. Open right source. It's right. open source. <laughs> right. Okay. Freeware. Yeah. Shareware. Yes. We're so back to shareware. Yeah. But if you're like a Debian user and you don't want to use any proprietary non-open source software, you wouldn't be able to unpack raw files because the the library to do that is not strictly open source. Correct. That would that is my interpretation. That was wow, that's a lot of a lot of history behind uh So what's what's our conclusion? <laughs> you're fucked. Uh, <laughs> yeah well I mean it comes back to my original question like wh where are we now unpacking raw files are we better off native non not uh, open source but not wh what did we call it it's free to Freeware, unpack shareware. where did you read the oh, that where was that was it the wikipedia article? yeah it was wikipedia did they make the, they allow the, it was developed in 1993 by Russian software engineer Eugene Rochelle and software is licensed by Win.RAR uh, GmbH. So what were you asking again, Paul? RAR stands for Rochelle Archive, Jeff, because that was your next question. Yeah. RAR, 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 RAR Lab supplies as a copyrighted freeware the C++, C++ source code. Copyrighted freeware. Right, which probably means you can't make any money on it. Right, because it's copyrighted. You can't use it to make money on it, but you can use it to decompress raw files. Well, well you well, can probably use it to make money, but you got to make sure that there's royalties. Right, or, right. Now, for you, whatever, yeah, you have to license it to make money on so it. So then you we go down the rabbit hole of Wikipedia and we go look at the Wikipedia entry on freeware. <laughs> um <laughs> There's no agreed upon set of rights license or EULA that f right. defines freeware. Every publisher defines its own rules. So gotcha. we'd have to see their see licensing right. for the freeware I think we've, for that. We're far enough down the rabbit hole. 
Well, you know, so I'll say this, you know, 10 ish years ago, 15 ish years ago, I worked with companies that had policies that you will not use open source or freeware, you know, you know, anything like that in operations, you know, that was forbidden, but Mm -hmm. you know, and and that was, that was very common 15 years ago, but you know, some, somewhere along the line, like, well, but yeah, but we don't have to pay for it and it works, you know, so there's a trade off in there. And now we're talking about a, 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 an implication or a fallout, uh, a consequence uh, of, of making that, you know, economic decision to like but it's it it costs so much less lee so so uh, now answer uh, the question lee i was thinking about your comment about freeware versus versus i'm thinking okay so we can't use the free linux distribution but we'll pay red hat for the for the pit for them to commercialize the open source oh. okay i guess you're ahead <laughs> Um, actually there's some, there's some advantages. I'm not picking on Red Hat because they do add, they do add value, but it's, it's, it's become such a fine line anymore to, 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 to make that claim. But I don't think it's but, a fine well, line. I think it's a very vague line. Well, okay. Vague is fine. Uh, vague is okay. By the way, mm-hmm. I'm good with vague. Um, okay. it, it's, it's no longer black and white, uh, because there's just so much incorporated. Just here's. Microsoft incorporating an, an, a, a free library that does the encryption for them in their in their distribution. Um, why would they write it themselves? Um, yeah. the, this that's, this very much ties a little segue uh, to my story number one. Mm-hmm. Um, will the European Cyber Resilience Act uh, kill open source software? And don't get me wrong, I am not an expert on the European CRA. Um, but basically they're trying to regulate how open source is used in software products and that depending on whether they take money for like donations for their Mm -hmm. development, they could be under certain regulations um, and or um, open source projects that are created by um, corporate developers like Microsoft takes mm-hmm. a product and releases it open source on something like GitHub, mm-hmm. there's now a whole set of new rules to do these types of stuff or have corporate employees support open source software. And there's, it's a mess along well, those same lines. It is a mess. And it's interesting because, you know, 15 years ago, where the policies of many corporations was don't use open source, the security community would would yell and scream and argue, but it's more supported because it's open source and you have access to source code, so there's more eyes on it. <laughs> but over time, we've we've figured out well that's not necessarily the True. case. Yep. Um, it, it 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 it. it I am interested in in, in wonder. Uh, I wonder whether S bombs address sort of you know, you know. Yes, it's one thing to list all the different component parts that you're using, whether it's open source or freeware or proprietary or mm-hmm. licensed or whatever. But do they rate it in, in any way as to you know reliability, supportability, update capability, the ability to put out you know patches and fixes to vulnerabilities are discovered it begs i'll say this on air we've never talked to alan friedman on this show 
He's been on other shows on the. He's been on other shows. I would love to get. We should get him on this show. He would love to be on this show. And, and I'm saying it always on a air. Yeah, always a yes for for Alan. You're not the first person to say Alan should come on the show because we yep. talked about um, supply chain uh, security mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. first part of this year. Um, but you know, I you know the, we can we we make an exception for Alan, of course. Well, let's you make know, that happen. Yeah, he's we he's been after as me was said on segment years. one. You could you could send an email to Renee. <laughs> yeah, we'll get him. We'll get him. We'll, we'll get him on the show. Cool. All right. But you know it's it's an interesting how it ties together the security of open source software versus the security of third party software versus the security of software that's incorporated in the operating system. I don't think there's any hard and fast rules. However, I I, I will say that I I like the security of the software included in the operating system. I think there's and it it pains me to say this, right, but there is a security benefit to software that is under the control of a central organization. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? If you know, decompressing raw files is under Microsoft's control, you have a pretty high degree of confidence that they're going to ship and continue to maintain a secure functionality in their software to decompress raw files, probably better than another company will with the added benefit of it would come down from a central repository to apply fixes for that. It would be potentially part of their bug bounty program. There's a whole bunch of different um, benefits to doing that, that I think across the board for most users is probably better, right? It eliminates the problem of user Google searches. How do I on, you know, decompress a raw file and landing on some kind of uh, bad, you know, click jag or whatever the the you know method is SEO uh, tomfoolery, if you will, that they land on software that has a backdoor in it, or that they download a version of WinRAR and they haven't fixed the you know buffer overflow vulnerability that sits on their system forever because it's not being updated for third party software. So well, and and chances are, if somebody's at an organization is asking that question, they're looking for a freeware tool mm-hmm. to be able to do it and, and, and right they don't want to pay for it I yeah mean, if we if we could have a follow-up uh conversation with jared from our from our first segment i would love to ask whether this category you know is is generally considered in scope or not for their for their program at msrc yeah well, like what of the other functionality is incorporated or included in their various programs like you can yep. run Linux on on Windows. Like how? What? What? To what boundary does that extend in their bug bounty program? If yep. you know, oh, I got Ubuntu running on on Windows. They're certainly not responsible for all the software vulnerabilities in Ubuntu. Speaking no. of Ubuntu, what is the what is wrong with Ubuntu? <laughs> they're really <laughs> pushing. So there's this war, if you will, and this relates to security because I think it boils down to who do you trust and who has the best format for distributing software in Linux? And best, you're gonna. There's a lot of ways you measure best, right? Is it the most secure? Mm-hmm. Is it the fastest? Is it the most reliable? Uh, Ubuntu is hugely pushing Snap, which I believe they, I believe they developed uh, the Snap uh, or at least ad- adopted it and, and support it in a big way, if not developed. Again, <clears throat> I didn't do all the research. 
I didn't do a ton either. Behind but. all the different compression <clears throat> algorithms, because now you get me going on a rabbit hole reading about GZIP and, and that whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Too. And now, but now also all the different um, packaging formats in Linux, and they're all slightly different. And again, we could talk at length about the security, which ones you should use, when you should use them, how you should use them kind of thing. But Larry, your story number three said uh, Ubuntu 2310's App Store will block uh, deb files mm -hmm. uh, when a snap yeah. is available. And they've done this already for Firefox, I believe. Uh, so for Firefox and Ubuntu, you if you try to install Firefox, app get install Firefox installs a snap on Ubuntu. Oh. And there's instructions on how you got to go in and like basically deconstruct what Ubuntu has done there so that you can install Firefox from another source other than the official snap if you don't want Firefox running inside of a snap. And that's interesting. Uh, I mean, it's definitely uh, uh, Canonical is planning to push that. But when you do the installs from their app store, and I don't know whether that affects any of sort of the back end. Like you're clearly starting to say if you do app get from the command line, uh, it uses that same app store and will push the it snap pushes the snap. Of the dev. It, it does. <clears throat> 99.9% sure that that's exactly how it works in Ubuntu. Hmm. You're this is all very that. fast. This is all very fascinating because my current client that I talked to Brent earlier today totally 100% Ubuntu shop and they, they use Canonical. So I'm listening very intently to what you guys are saying. Yeah, Canonical is basically creating their own ecosystem. So I mean, this move doesn't uh, shock me because if you want, there's now like a paid for version of Ubuntu that will support more of the legacy operating systems. I remember looking into it a, a while back as well. Like they're clearly, it sounds like you mentioned Red Hat before. Uh, lead like that it's it reeks yeah, yeah, to me yeah. that they're like moving in that direction a more commercial entity i also right. want to say from a lot of different perspectives i and it's not necessarily a bad thing right i mean you're gonna piss off no. the open source zealots but i mean breathing sometimes pisses off the open source yep. zealots so there's that <laughs> yep. um but also i think they want to go towards a more enterprise uh focused Red Hat-like model it, it, for Ubuntu. Enterprise-focused, oh. and I'd, I'd also start, uh, you know, I'm going to punch myself in the face later for saying this, but I think maybe by leveraging their app store with Snap, it puts them in a better position to start positioning Linux on the desktop. Yeah. Because well, it's that much easier, and you're dealing with their packaging kind of like you are as opposed to something like a Chromebook, which is using Linux and BSD on the back. Yeah, Lee. Yeah, so I was reading in here, and they're saying they're they're coming with an all snap immutable un Ubuntu distribution next year, which means right they're really they're going to be all, all snap all the time. And I'm looking a little bit. I mean, the way they describe snaps in these articles, they sound more like containers than individual apps. They are, yeah. Okay. Okay. Not like we well, think of a Docker. Not like we think of like a Docker container, but it's a a container within the. Right, it's I got mean, for us old school like Unix people. Run. It's a Cheroot jail for every for every yeah, application. Right. <laughs> essentially, essentially, that could be is. really cool or really wow. annoying. Depending, well, it could. Yeah. It, it does get it. So it is cool. Like I like the security models uh, behind it because it offers some kind of separation of your processors uh, processes in 
inside of these containers. However, the security restrictions that this containerized application implements can oftentimes break things as in it it won't let you break out of the container to share files or devices in certain scenarios. So like stuff just breaks or doesn't like one particular feature of an application won't work if it's a snap. You have to install that from source if you want that feature because the snap container containerization breaks certain right. functionality from usually it's things like a third party uh, componently. So think of like OBS and all the different like devices and drivers it has to interface with and you install a custom one from GitHub that someone wrote. Well, that doesn't work because the rules behind the application implemented by Snap make it not make it not work. And when you're trying to do things like media, like I am, that's super annoying. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, just install yeah. it from it, not Snap. It, it feels like you're learning SE Linux all over again. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so a lot of these restrictions do just get in the way. But to Larry's desktop point too, uh, it does address one of the issues that the Linux desktop suffers from, and that is. I, I'm an application developer. I want to make software for Linux. Mm -hmm. How do I package it? Do I give right. you a Deb? Do I, I give you a Snap? Do I give you, a, uh, you know, all these other different options that, that they have, depending on what right. distribution you're running? So, but the so original theory, question could, we were asking, I'm sorry, the original question we were asking is, is in terms of support and you know, uh, you know, vulnerabilities are discovered. Who's on the hook for? providing the fix and the remediation and the no notification. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we've answered that question. Mm. Sorry, re rephrase the question, Jeff. Well, I, this all started with a discussion of a vulnerability was discovered. Who's responsible for fixing it? Uh, you know, providing notification that it's a problem for all the users oh. that are out there. Um, you know what? You know what? What's the what's the responsibility for fixing problems that are discovered when inevitably a problem is discovered? Good point. Well, in the open source context we're talking about now, the uh, original developer, if you will, of the software typically is responsible for the fix uh, mm -hmm. of that software. Then it's the responsibility of the distributions and our package maintainers to build update. that fix into an update their release or their packaging of that software and release the packaging of that software. And that's right. where <laughs> and then, it gets squirrely, right? Yeah, and because then it's, a, it's up to the user to install no, it. Then it's up to the operating system to integrate that package into the repositories. In some scenarios, use. yes. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So so that when you run an update command, it comes down from the repository with the new version. Yep. And typically, there, from my experience, there's a pretty significant lag between an app <laughs> repository and the actual version that's available on the website, even if it's in a dev format. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. And there's the scenario of uh, backporting. Oh, God. So, oh, yeah. Where it gets squirrely for me, Jeff, in a, a security scenario is developer. It has current version 1.0. Security fix, you know, advisory comes out and the developer goes, okay, well, that fix for that security problem is in version 1.1. By the way, I also released a whole bunch, I fixed a bunch of other bugs and implemented some new features. And since 1.1, let's say, was ready, like almost ready to, to ship, I fixed the bug. I did all my aggression testing and 1.1 is the latest version and it has a security fix along with all this other stuff. 
when 1.1 potentially goes to a Linux distribution, let's say, that distribution may go, I don't want all this other stuff mm. to go to 1.1. <laughs> I just right. want the security fix. So they'll take just the security yep. fix. They'll apply it to 1.0 and then they'll release 1.0 dash more secure. Oh, they want Then sometimes they won't even do that. It'll just it'll be just one be, version 1.0. It'll just be version 1.0 and there's an, some kind of update and you've got the security fix. There's a lot of dangerous things in software that can go mm -hmm. wrong in that <clears> scenario, <throat> right? Like the original yep. developer regression tested with all of those other changes. So it may remediate the vulnerability it may not it may remediate it in certain circumstances it or it may not. introduce other kinds of problems with the software uh so yep. i don't i don't i hate that i don't so, like that so the, the final one i'm reading <laughs> on this article and i'm realizing something here uh go read about ubuntu's versioning oh god and this is ubuntu 23 mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. anything with an odd number on their versions is like your alpha like we're testing shit out to go to the good long-term support version for ubuntu 24 mm -hmm. and uh, and i'm not gonna yeah i don't want to over generalize here but if you run anything on your systems with an odd numbered ubuntu distribution you're a fool mm -hmm. <laughs> you should be running the even number distributions correct uh because they are mm -hmm. in fact stable um, the mm -hmm. odd number versions are going to be the, the bleeding edge type of stuff. So right. this is an opportunity for Canonical to be bleeding edge and try to push this forward, but it may not make version tw uh, 24, 2404. Right. So we can hope. So, <clears throat> so uh, Ubuntu... There are many versions out there. I hear what you're saying about odd versus even. Is there a concept of uh, any versions of Ubuntu that are, you know, like a, a you know like a Windows Seven, Windows XP that are not supported anymore? That they're not providing updates anymore? Is, does that exist? Absolutely, yeah, in that's the correct. World? Yeah, and in, in uh, any and it applies to pretty much all Linux distributions, Jeff. Uh, at mm -hmm. some point, they will stop updates. Yep. Which okay. is weird because, like, it depends on the distribution. But mm -hmm. at some point, like, basically your app to get update or install just stops working. Right. I think you so can still. Hi hypothetically, is Ubuntu 18 uh, it's still supported? Uh, I it's, think uh, 18 is borderline, 16 is not. Yeah. You got to check the uh, individual distributions page to see what uh level of support is for that particular distribution so like you'd have to go to i won't do it now but you go to a bunch of site and they're going to tell you like this version is fully supported this version is just security fixes and it'll give you a date when when it's um out of service. And is, but is, with there a, is, is there a concept well is there a concept of end of life versus end of support um yeah it's ubuntu. yeah they'll yeah. well they'll, and they'll define it well one interesting about ubuntu it's interesting you asked that jeff is they've got a program now that you can buy a subscription and get access to ubuntu 1804 that's fully supported i forget what right. they call that that program but um if you like i actually looked at it and but for like the small number of linux uh, servers that I'm managing now, it wasn't, you know, like economically, it didn't really make sense. Yep. But if I had 
thousands of Ubuntu. 1804s. And there were 1804. Yeah, I would pay Ubuntu to stay on that and uh, in, in just get support from them. And then I believe if you pay for that program, they mm-hmm. provide you all of um, not just security updates, but updated software within that. So they're like mm-hmm. actively maintaining that 1804 uh, uh, you know, uh, version of the OS. Okay, interesting. I Ubuntu mean, Enterprise, I think it was Ubuntu Ent- some. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is along the lines of pl- paying out, for but. extended support for Windows Seven, correct? <clears throat> for yep. Microsoft. So well, and that, and that's that's what I'm sort of uh, trying to parrot. You know, the Windows Seven, Windows XP, a generation before that, there was the end of support, but then there was extended support because so many point of sale systems were running on Windows XP and then Windows 7 that and you know there were so many retailers that had so many tens of thousands of devices out there that it just wasn't you know practical you know even if they wanted to update them it was a you know 18 month to 36 month process to 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 do that and they needed to be able to you know, meet certain PCI requirements in the meantime. Yeah. And, so, and sorry, Jeff, this is called Ubuntu Pro. So you can get like 10, okay. 10 years of support. Uh, okay. And it, it lists it all out. So if, if you, I have like a, a customer that's in this particular scenario, I'd have them look at Ubuntu Pro. Okay. Uh, arguably, if you have to do that, you're not a pro. Just kidding. Well, yeah. No, I know. There, I know. There's so many other extenuating circumstances to make that over generalization. Like, but it was yeah, a joke. It was yeah, a joke. But, yeah, I know. But you know, like open source people are like, oh, well, you just, you know, you rebuild it and all that stuff. And I'm like, yes, if you've got a good one, your workstation or laptop like I have, sure. But Or let's say virtual instance. Yeah, if you've say, got thousands yeah. of virtual instances. In, in like a you're VPC in an AWS environment. Yeah, yeah. sure, I want to go update all 5,000 instances, but uh, those of us that have spent time as Linux or Unix admins <laughs> knows that no matter how good you are, that's no small feat, right? That's a lot of work. I mean, right? I'll, I'll right. tell, you right, tell you right now, uh, right here on my Mac that I'm sitting here doing on the mm. show, um, I have a bunch of virtual machines and yeah. classified by... Uh, category and my RF hacking folder has uh, Ubuntu uh, 1204, 1404, 1604, 1804, and 2004. For reasons. <laughs> because I've that I, over the evolutions of using mm-hmm. tools, that's where I've installed them, and then I need a new one to do another thing. And well, the 1804 is the, the latest and greatest, so I'll just install 1804. Yep. Yep. Like, uh, let's see. Um, my uh, Ubuntu twelve oh four has some uh, I sniff GPS and Zig uh, Zigbee stuff in it. Fourteen oh four has a bunch of GSM um, uh, SDR stuff. Sixteen oh four is doesn't have any notes. Eighteen oh four has some more software defined radio stuff like GNU Radio Iridium uh, and a bunch of other fun stuff. Yeah, that's a that's a different challenge because oftentimes oh, you you get those tools you know from GitHub that support a RF functionality <clears throat> is a great example, and the author wrote the tool for Ubuntu yep. eighteen oh four yep. and just it never mm-hmm. updated it. So then you if you want to go to the next version of Ubuntu, you've got to do the work to to get it there, and then you submit the patches mm-hmm. to the maintainer if you want to go through that work. Hope that they uh, accept them and that that work can be a varying degrees of <laughs> difficulty in time. Yeah. Right? Now, now arguably that my Ubuntu 1204 virtual machine, like all that stuff is supported on 
more modern, oh, okay. like up to yeah. 22, but it's just been, well, I got to reinstall it. Mm-hmm. And it's a virtual machine and it works here and it's not something I use every day. So oh, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it works. Oh, I wanted to talk about uh, comparison of security benchmarks. Nope, let's go. This is my <laughs> my story number my story number eighteen. <laughs> I thought this was really cool, and I don't know what the like Windows people uh, really think of this. I just thought it was kind of neat. I think I tried to ask uh, ask around about this. I think some people might be on vacation and stuff, but essentially, this person put uh, read all of or not all, but read a bunch of security benchmarks slash guidelines like. CAS benchmarks, right? Mm-hmm. And then compared them um, with their own suggestions and Microsoft security baselines. And where they matched, he was like, okay, cool. Where they didn't match, he noted them in the link in my story number 18. And so what he lists here are like the exceptions where he says, look, the security benchmarks in a generalized sense he lists where these uh come from suggest that you do this and i think this is a bad idea like this either goes against microsoft guidance or goes against my own uh experience um Mm. or just doesn't make a difference in this person's opinion i and i read through some of these and i have to say i kind of agree so let's take one as an example uh both cis and Stig suggest altering the name of the built-in administrator and guest accounts as a security measure. He states, this is futile as those built-in accounts can be rarely identified by PowerShell, regardless of any modifications to its name or description. This has been true since like the beginning of time. Sure. This has been a recommendation from like Windows NT days, I, I want to yeah, say. This, this, is not a, this is not a new recommendation. This is like renaming your root account in Linux or, or, or yep. Unix, right? And thinking yep. like, oh, someone's just not going to look for whatever UID zero is. This is exactly the same thing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So he's like, don't, don't, don't bother doing this. Like some of these are don't bother doing that because it doesn't increase the security and it could have other potentially negative right. consequences. Uh, all right. So, I mean, so this one, I'd like to throw some back and I wish, damn it. I wish Tyler was here. Mm. Um, <laughs> because the example here is that the PowerShell to identify the administrator level accounts mm-hmm. is a PowerShell for get local user, mm-hmm. meaning you're already on the system. So you can right. just, there's like, an, no a number sh- of ways like, to No yeah. shit. But what if you don't have access to the system and you're remote and you're trying right. to do stuff to find that RID 500 level account and you mm-hmm. start using administrator and it doesn't work. Right. Well, now maybe you have a little bit more of a black box. And I think the answer is moot here in that instead of referencing just, the administrator account, you're referencing the RID 500 account regardless. Right. But so, I mean, also does Bloodhound enumerate it does. A bunch of that stuff it as can, well. I mean, can. through but, but various got, different means. But again, but you need to have some level some of Some level of access. access. Correct. Access. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's a whole topic for no, probably a whole separate segment is the the nature of the severity of vulnerabilities and the the frailty of best practices or benchmarks. But, you know, the assumptions that go into what it takes to actually exploit it, like already well, having access, that that's kind of a big deal. Well, there's 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 a I don't. What I'm I'm looking at this, and I there. Okay, so obviously, I I live in 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 a world 
based on benchmarks and security configurations, but we don't just take the out of the box mm. and employ it. Mm. We have to make sure it meets various requirements, including usability. For example, sure. he's he's taking on take you know disabling Windows Hello, and I would disable Windows Hello because we're supposed to be set up as pass. Uh, smart card required, not password, so I wouldn't allow it. But it has nothing to do with the security of Windows Hello. It has to do right. with our environment. Um, mm. Some of these things, like so, you don't, you don't. If you blindly apply a benchmark, you're you're going to get really bad results. You really need to know what it's doing Agreed. and what your environment requires. Agreed. I think that's, I think that's what he's saying here, Lee. Right, and just trying to point out specific examples that, and again, not every of his rebuttals are for everyone either because his rebuttals no. are essentially a new benchmark or standard and it may not apply to everyone. But right. uh, the lesson here is exactly as you articulated that you just can't blindly take uh, mostly CIS and the STIGs, right, mm. as <clears throat> gospel and say, I got to do everything in there. You customize it for your now, environment. And, and now I'm reading, yeah, but that, and, and I'm reading through this, the, the one Lee that you mentioned, the disabling Windows Hello pin. And using traditional passwords instead. Um, I think, based on the comments here, that it was largely that you know clearly Windows Hello was intended for standalone devices and not domain joined computers. Right. And they, you know, Microsoft even says this. You know, from what I'm reading here, a thousand thousand ways to Sunday, um, and that uh, Hello is disabled when it's domain joined. So. When they're saying disable Windows Hello for domain joined computers, it's kind of redundant. He's the the, the person here, uh, Hotcake X is kind of like you know this is it's incompatible. It's it's erroneous and kind of nonsensical because of that. Yet then Microsoft has an article from earlier this year that says why a pin is better than an online password. Mm-hmm. That that yeah that that face Larry's making. I was having that same face a minute ago. <laughs> mm. Yeah, what the hell? But th but this is a huge problem, and I I run into this all the time in the, in the PCI world because the the requirement in PCI is to have configuration standards, hardening standards that are based on industry accepted. Um, you know, guidelines and CIS benchmarks are what I see more often than not. And the problem is, you know, the CIS, CIS benchmarks, you know, we're arguing the nuance of the efficacy, uh, efficacy, is that the right efficacy? word? Uh, uh, efficacy of, you know, any of the specific things that CIS recommends. And, and we're, I, I absolutely agree. It, it requires somebody to, to put, have context to put it into your environment and put it into your operation and, and you know, kind of makes, you know, does this make sense for us after all? But nobody does that because there's so few organizations that have people that have a Brent, to quote Phoenix Projects, that know enough about what's going on to be able to say, yeah, that one makes sense. We should do that one. No, that one doesn't make sense. We shouldn't do that one. Or we should do that one, but you know, maybe with a, a slight tweak. And and I think that's a, a problem in our industry as a whole, at least in the private sector, is is the lack of 
enough people that have that knowledge to be able to make those kind of nuanced decisions. And there's not a, a good way to, to go out to a third party or consultant or some sort of automated tool or, or anything that's going to make the, the right call in, in any instance. So, you know, we're, we're left as, as, you know, assessors myself to say, okay, you're using the CIS benchmarks. I'm going to push you a little bit on how much are you applying it, how much are you you're trying to figure out what's what's relevant and what's not, and that's one element. But the the element of does it really do anything for us? Does it really make sense to do it? I, I don't think there's a whole lot of people in a in a lot of organizations that have that um, that 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 institutional knowledge or awareness or understanding to be able to make those calls. What do we do with that? Yeah, it's hard. It, it's hard to have a universal hardening guide. And the author of Absolutely. this article also has a hardened Windows security uh, PowerShell script that goes into hardens nice. Windows, right? But it hardens Windows to whatever the author defined as hardening Windows, right. which, probably, which may or may not, which may right. or may not apply to any, any given environment. Works for this exactly. person, and awesome that he put it out there, or he or she or whatever, you know, this person put it out there and is making it available to the public, but every organization is going to be different in terms of what, right. you know, settings you put in your Windows environment. Lee, you've already given, you know, examples uh, to that. So uh, you basically have to come up with your own. I mean, there's no... There's no shortcut. Like if there was one universal universal PowerShell script we could run to harden Windows, we'd all be running it, but it doesn't work like that. Yes. Right. Unfortunately. But that doesn't mean you can't take this guy's and tweak it to meet your needs instead Correct. of starting with zero. Correct. I mean, that's yes. That's what we all do. We don't start yes. at, the, at the starting line. We start with something we think is going to be close and then tweak it. Yep. Just like ChatGPT. Well, so it basically asks the question is – you know, given that you don't have maybe the the background and the knowledge and the time and the resources, is it okay to use a benchmark per se overall? Even though if you go with a a recommendation and a benchmark, as we're talking about here, you know that that really doesn't do it for you. Or it really doesn't work. But well, most organizations aren't going to do that. Is it okay to use a benchmark like a CIS benchmark as a foundation? Yes or no. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think and, I think the mm. has to be yes. And and you and you should test it before you roll it out everywhere. You, you know, with real use cases for your organization. Yeah, but and that's a tedious process. It's intended to be generally fine, but it's there's things they've decided aren't okay that you may not think are not okay. Right. right. And it's a slow rollout too. You should. Um, right. In my experience, regardless of the operating system, actually, when you apply any kind of hardening, break it up into several different phases, right? You have to manually go through everything and go, all right, first pass, I'm going to do these five configuration changes. I'm going to roll those out to a small number of, you know, servers, workstations, whatever, see how it goes. Okay. Monitor then go into the next phase and you kind of chip away at it and you're going to run into ones and you go, Oh, that totally borked something. That's a technical term. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I need to back that out. Right. And have a facility yeah. for, for backing, for backing this out uh, and then continue to march forward and then go, all right, the ones I had to back out. Now we have a decision to make. Do we accept the risk or 
do we find some other way to implement this control or do we find a better way to monitor for it and make it not as impactful? Good, Jeff. We good there? Did I cover all the bases? Use right terminology? No, you've, yes, you did, but there's very few organizations that have the maturity and and the resources to be able to do that. It is very resource intensive. I completely agree. It is. It's a pain in the butt. But there's there's another thing out there too, and that is with you know when we first, when I first started working with 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 benchmarks and putting them on Windows, you pretty much had a security config file that you had to drop on every node for it to to be configured. Now you can create group policy objects and implement mm-hmm. them, and you can deal with inheritance to control it. Mm-hmm. Point is, you're not touching every node. Once you've got the config where you want it, you can set the GPOs and get it out there. Um, yep. And then you get a monitor and for so drip. I mean, now we're just delving into complete configuration management, which is again but hard. Just, but it's gotten easier. As, that was well, my whole and, point but as you know, Lee, like you got to monitor for drift. Like then you got to have a facility right. to go, which ones are not in compliance with my configuration and which ones are. So you have to audit your configuration. Uh, I did a lot of that uh, type of work at Tenable, uh, not the actual like implementing it as a blue teamer, but the what are we looking for what are we auditing how are we auditing it from the uh, security scanner side which a lot of vm mo- all the major vms do this right it's part of their functionality it lets you audit all of your configuration and compare it to a yep. standard and how many people just throw away audit the data yeah you, or oh, yeah or you can just yeah well then there's the monitoring of the actual logs as it's running and go well that condition should never exist because the configuration should make that not possible, but here it's possible. And then there's the monitoring of the actual configuration. Like are all mm-hmm. 10,000 windows devices in my environment conformant to my configuration policy. And that's just, I mean, Welcome that's just, I mean, world. it is, it is table stakes, but Jeff's right, man. Like there's a certain maturity level you got to reach before you get there. Yeah. Yeah. Hey Paul, I've got uh, Welcome to in- in- information assurance. Yep. I've got two stories I'd yeah. love to cover before Let's we do go. It. Oh, please. Um, one of them is a carryover from last week. The other one, mm. yeah, whatever. But uh, but before we do that, a little mo- little moment of humor. Uh, if you're playing along at home for the Security Weekly drinking game, uh, now, uh, PCI. Any, anytime, if you're drinking on PCI, any, I think you're drunk. Anytime Jeff says, uh, <laughs> you know, we've already included PCI, cryptography, NSA, the pit, or uh, encoding, uh, we now need to add the Phoenix Project and Brent yep. to that to, to that, that list. list. <laughs> so. Yep. Just some Absolutely. updates in real time. So we're drinking on Phoenix Project and Brent. <laughs> in Got addition it. to all the others. And, but yep. only when Jeff says them. Yes. So to, to yes. keep you <laughs> not sober. Well, I, I think we should have a Fair drink enough. panel here. Anytime we have a story with a with a, with a, with a NAC device, I mean, you know. <laughs> come on. How many people are having vulnerabilities in their, in their, in their network storage devices? A mm-hmm. NAS device. Yeah. That too. So which, which are your two stories? <laughs> so, Tunnel crash or... Uh, no. or the seventy dollars spoofing device. Uh, so what? Yeah. Well, if we do the one carryover from last week, the seventy dollars device can spoof yeah. Apple device, an Apple device, and trick you into sharing your password. Um, I actually encountered this behavior while at DefCon in oh, the LionCon areas, like walking mm-hmm. through. Bluetooth was not off on my phone, and all of a sudden, I got messages. The one that was terrifying was like, "Hey, your device is trying to pair with an Apple TV. Please, you provide your password." I'm like, "Oh hell no! I know where I am." Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's effectively a Raspberry Pi that sends a bunch of uh, Bluetooth low energy messages mm-hmm. uh, out into the air uh, to highly indicate 
that maybe when you're turning Bluetooth low energy off on your iPhone, it's not really turning it off. Yeah. And the heavy utilization of Bluetooth low energy in the Apple ecosystem. Uh, we've already seen some of that evolution for um, yeah, something like the AirTags and a bunch of other stuff with the BLEE uh, utilities. But this one is interesting in that they, uh, the researcher uh, Jay Box um, to, you know, was able to figure out a whole bunch of the other messaging to trigger uh, pop-ups on uh, a bunch of other devices uh, being sent from his Raspberry Pi with a Bluetooth adapter. Um, the one that, and part of the reason why I want to bring this up is I cannot find this code anywhere or any other discussion other than mm -hmm. a very small thread on Mastodon um, from Jay. And that I'd love to see some more of this because I'd like to play with it. And I'd love to see the source code and be able to compile it on my own devices and help contribute to some of the messages. Um, specifically, Jay uh, indicated that his device just sent the broadcast, the beacon. Yeah, I was going to say he wasn't collecting the He passwords. wasn't collecting yeah, okay. data, but I wonder how easy it would mm. be to start collecting responses to some of these. <clears throat> Not that I want to use it for evil, but I wonder what the possibility is so that we can help start yeah. educating other users in, in enterprise and other folks uh, places yeah. to figure this stuff out. Yeah. So, hey, I'd love to know more. Please go bug Jay and see if he releases it. I heard something in the Mastodon thread about I can't wait to see the talk. Mm -hmm. uh, great. Yeah, I see the talk. Let's, you know, get me his source code. Like, yeah. first, I'd love to, you know, self-serving so interest. I want to talk about it as a case study in the wireless class. I'm waiting for you to come up with your own implementation, Larry. Yeah. I know you're going to. Uh, it's not enough hours in the day, and it's already been done. I didn't right? say there was time. <laughs> right? <laughs> There's not going to be time. You have teenagers. Yeah, yeah teenagers and, and a new dog and yeah, two yep. SANS classes and a podcast and a day job. And, and TP-Link smart yeah. bulbs? Nope, yeah. that wasn't the other one. Oh. Yeah. My story By the way, did I... Go ahead, Lee. Yeah, I was going to say, you reminded me of one of these cool swag items I got at Black Hat. Oh. Oh, yeah. It's, wow, you got an AirTag as a swag item? Yes. Man, how much how much of your data and purchasing power did you have to give up for that? Um, <laughs> I had to take the sign up for the CISO Summit at Black Hat. Oh, okay. Got they it. They gave me like a shit ton of stuff. It was a full backpack. Hmm. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I including a couple of couple of Yetis of different formats and other things. It was kind of cool. Nice. I got to dig up most of it. Came home. <laughs> I got to dig up one of my air tags that I used for research mm. to put it on the dog. Yes, his reasons. Right? Yep. Yep. But uh, no, the other story was uh, my story number five. Oh yeah, introducing Python in Excel. The best of both worlds for data analysis and visualization in Epic Hacks. I mean, well, uh, I mean, if your job, hell yeah, but I'm wondering, is it? Now, I mean, this, this looks really cool, but I'm wondering if it's a fairly narrow user base that would actually use it. I don't know. I mean, but how many people know Python 
that are now potentially going into some data visualization. I mean, arguably, there's probably a lot. Well, but would they be using Excel in that case, or would they be writing apps and stuff that are talking against data lakes, data warehouses, fill in the, fill in the acronym? But, I mean, I think it's really cool. I, I, I mean, agreed. I still think they should have called it Python in the sheets. Because... <laughs> Like it's like a wow. triple, it's like a triple, a triple entendre. Is that what yep. you would call it? Because yep. it could mean yeah. like a male body part in an actual bed with sheets, or it could mean a snake in in, in your like bed. Snakes on a plane, a snakes in the or bed. Or it could mean like the programming language in Excel. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, as I'm reading through some of this, I mean, I yeah. All right, Python in Excel. Um, their comment was, "We're partnering with Anaconda." Jokes just write themselves, Paul. Oh, my God. And my uh, Anaconda don't want none unless you got Excel, hon. A leading enterprise-grade Python repository. Uh, Python in Excel leverages Anaconda distribution for Python running in Azure. Yeah, using Excel's built-in connectors and Power Query, you can easily bring external data into Python in Excel workflows. That's I'm, I'm arguing that's not easy. A, <laughs> that's actually a big deal. That is it's, it is cool. a big deal, but I'm arguing Lee that it's not easy. Oh, I didn't say easy. Okay, but <laughs> the article said easy, which is what I'm questioning, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. So well, I mean, I mean cle- clearly this is like O365 Office Azure yeah. in the Azure environment. So my my initial knee jerk reaction was like, holy crap, they're putting Python in Excel and our desktop. And all I need to do is send an Excel file to Paul, and he's going to open it with his local copy of Microsoft Excel, and epic hacks will ensue. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that. Python yeah. running in Azure, which yeah, yeah, yeah. It includes pandas for data manipulation, which yep. also like it's not, it's not really. Oh, so it, so here's a question. You know how with Word documents, we're used to having macros disabled. Are we now going to have a setting for disabling Python from unknown sources? That's a good question. Right? Right? Because uh, it is, uh, you can do a lot of stuff in Python. Yep. You certainly can. Yeah. I want to play with it, damn it. You want to play with your Python? Did I just say that out that loud? That too. In the sheets. <laughs> Did I just say that out loud? Good God. Uh, uh, just quick tunnel that's crack. That's a cool story. Thank you. Tunnel crack? Tunnel crack. Widespread design flaws in VPN clients. Yeah. I've seen some buzz about how VPN clients really don't protect you. I, I mean, I they think do, I've kind of been in that. They, that do, they do protect you, but. Lee. But. Yeah. It's the but. I mm. mean. It's always the local net attack. I mean, you can set up a VPN so that the only services can be accessed or what's going through the VPN. Nothing on the local network is no, available. No split tunnel. And the problem is it's it sucks for the users because they can't print, they can't access file servers, they can't do anything on their local network. Yep. So the attack looked really cool. I mean, they basically lie about where services are, putting them all in the local network so that... They're not running through the VPN, then you can man in the middle and go to town. I mean, it's pretty cool. But I think they're talking about the like more consumer VPNs, like Express VPN, Proton VPN, well, Nord VPN, that that kind of style VPN. Where we're I'm not just, talking Tor or something like that. Well, no. I mean, these are essentially glorified Tor. Uh, these 
protected the protected well, VPN tunnel is just so your traffic is encrypted from your laptop to some VPN provider on the internet and they're basically proxying right, your well, traffic for you and the protection is more for a privacy thing that your ISP can't snoop on you. There's also some protection right. that if someone is sniffing that yes, your traffic is encrypted, but it also leaks some other data. We've seen a lot of these services fall victim right. to like your DNS is still your DNS requests are still going out in the clear um, potentially and things like that. So unless the server switches all your DNS requests to right. go over the VPN, right. which you can do with a commercial. I mean, the, the main difference is, you know, the, the VPN terminating in your da- air quotes data center versus terminating, you know, somewhere else through a, through the, you know, a third party, you know, the, the VPN apps you can buy like Tor. Right. Or, you know what I mean? Um, so, but they it, have the same risks. Yeah, it, it, from based on reading the paper here um, from Matthew Vanuf, who I highly respect because he's broken a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and Matthew Vanuf and team, I will add, <clears throat> um, one of the the thing the the attack relies on being able to manipulate a DNS server or spoof a DNS server. So you're effectively right. redirecting DNS. So and that that DNS server as part of the VPN client doesn't get reconfigured to be one inside the tunnel. Right. Mm-hmm. So yes. you stand up a tunnel, uh, your DNS server gets rewritten by the tunnel to one over the tunnel. Mm-hmm. Then you wouldn't be vulnerable. But what they found is that so many of the VPN clients uh, don't update the VPN and continue to lo- use your local, local DNS. Local DNS it's server. DNS. Right. It's always DNS. It's always DNS until it's well, D- yeah, DNS. Right. And, and reality is with a corporate VPN, because you've got to provide access to internal clients, you're going to do that because you have non, non, non-published DNS names you have to access, where if you're just buying a commercial VPN, the assumption is everything's already public, so you leave the VPN settings, I mean the DNS settings alone on the client, right? I mean, that's the way I'm thinking about right. it. Right. Yeah, it's a very similar scenario. Lee. Yeah. It's all about DNS. So, in the, that, always, from yeah. reading the article, DNS. Tunnel Crack, yeah, it's all about the DNS. It's all, D- yeah. it's all DNS. And, you know, yeah. and, and part of the reason why I picked up on this is that, you know, the, the traditional, since a couple of the other attacks that Matthew has introduced for Wi-Fi, um, mm-hmm. we, you, you really, if you want secure Wi-Fi, you do all of the 802.11 security, and then you run a VPN on top of that, regardless mm-hmm. of where that VPN terminates, whether it's your your Wi-Fi segment in enterprise or it's outbound somewhere else. Um, and this is, you know, like that was the solution. Like Matthew broke everything else. So we run a VPN. And now Matthew's mm. breaking that solution too. Right, right. Like, God <laughs> damn it, stop. <laughs> Way <laughs> like, to go. <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah, so think about all of those considerations. You know, take re- take uh, recommendations with a grain of salt, and think about what the configuration actually means in right. some of these cases. Well, uh, now, 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 turn, now change the way back to machine to think about a world where you're using per app VPNs. I mean, you could get. I mean, you're 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 no longer necessarily have the 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 corporate DNS going on. Possibly, you're, you're you know you're creating these little private tunnels, which could potentially be spoofed. What's what's going on? One or the other. It's yep. interesting. Yeah, I, I found some of the analysis pretty interesting. This too, is cool. In that, um, 
of they tested excuse me a ton of VPN clients across a bunch of different different operating systems and consistently every VPN client that they tested on iOS was vulnerable mm. every single one of them and I wouldn't be surprised if that's because of the way that Apple in their walled yeah. garden right restricts what apps can do to right. your network configuration. Right. Meaning that these apps wouldn't allow you to update DNS on the local device from that of local server to be one over the over the VPN's mm. connection. I, I don't know for fact, but I suspect that this is going to be one of the times where Apple's walled garden comes back to bite you for some of these types of attacks. Yeah, that happens. It does. And, I, and I'm a fanboy. Mm. I'm like, Paul used to be the guy that I anything used to be the that Steve, Steve Jobs would hold up, you'd buy two of. Don't even I don't even know what it is, but there's I'm an Apple event. It. Uh, it. There's an Apple event, and I'm got my credit card out, and I'm buying whatever he announces. I'm not that yeah. bad, but I appreciate some of that walled garden approach. And now I've left Apple com- entirely. Yep, you have. And you run Linux on the desktop, and you do Android. Uh, yeah, Android and. Uh, uh, what's the other one? Um, what's the exercise that you do that you tell everybody about? Oh, CrossFit. Yeah, you do CrossFit and run yep. a bunch on your desktop. And you got to tell everybody about it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I love you, man. I want to tell everyone about my story number 19, audio codes, VoIP phones, insufficient firmware validation. What now? Wait, 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 what now? Yeah, so the, the vulnerability is essentially the phones check the when they download a new firmware or firmware update. They just check a checksum. Not right. any kind of cryptographic validation, it's just a checksum. So the team figured out how to basically modify the firmware but still have I'm a valid, valid checksum. checksum. Uh, right. So that is interesting in all the research where, is in there. Where, the, which story the, is this? My story oh, number 19. 19. Okay. So this is basically a hash collision attack. Uh, sort of. Uh, yeah, I, did, I think there was portions of the, the checksum, the way it was calculated... Uh, omitted portions of the firmware in the calculation for the checksum. So that's where you could change right. things and still end up with a valid checksum. I believe oh. that was kind of the premise of the, okay. the research. But, uh, yeah. you're, 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 you're basically manipulating it so the checksum is still the same and, 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 and then you're just having a lot of fun. Correct. It's, so you could, I guess you I could, shouldn't make like that's trivial. That's actually kind of hard, but the, it's the kind of cool. Part, the neat part is the all the information on how these VoIP phones communicate with the server and figure out if they need updates. Uh, and it got mm-hmm. into Zoom zero touch provisioning feature, um, which is a, like how all these phones provision. They talk back to a web server and the whole architecture behind all of these VoIP phones. And it wasn't so much in the story. It was in the resources. So this was a presentation at Black Hat uh, this year, 2023. And uh, in the article I linked to, you got to go to reference number five. Reference number five is uh, 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 SYSS S- log. Yes, yeah. So this is the whole technical details. This is the one okay, you want to read. I meant to swap the link out. Yeah, because the uh, the advisory is light on the details about. And, yeah, and in the uh, advisory I linked to, reference number five is the full like explanation of the because I was like, what is this? What is this protocol? What does it do? And so zero touch pone, abusing Zoom zero touch provisioning for remote oh. attacks on desk phones. This was the more interesting oh. research on okay. this. Okay, see, yeah. when 
Oh. The, the original article you had is like, oh, it's a VoIP phone. I'm like, yeah. yeah, great, it's a VoIP phone. And then they said, yeah, it's a Zoom phone that you can... Well, it's a phone that supports Zoom's ZTP. Like Zero touch provisioning, which I would assume <clears throat> also uses Zoom's communication network to enable your VoIP phone. Yep. So now you now you grab my interest. Yeah. So right. like it talks about <laughs> how cool. ZT like a six step process for how ZTP works, um, which is I won't read it all, but yeah, it's crazy how it all works. Uh, and then they go into like elaborate detail about how devices are assigned uh, and how to backdoor the firmware, how passwords are encrypted but not really. Um, <laughs> so the the whole. All the nitty gritty details uh, are in there, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, Zoom. So, uh, so Zoom and audio codes provisioning concept, as well as in certified hardware. So, combine all the vulnerabilities can be used to remotely take over arbitrary devices. Um, so, they demonstrated the combination of advanced cloud-based communications like Zoom, along with traditional technologies like VoIP devices, can be. A desirable target for attackers. So they put an eavesdropping device on the phone. So the way <clears throat> they were backdooring the firmware was with an eavesdropping device, and they showed how all of that, all of that worked. Yeah. I mean, all this has been fixed and stuff like that, but uh, it involved uh, Zoom phone system management updates in addition to updates to audio codes, which I'm hoping they put better firmware validation on there than just. Uh, oh. I'm wondering Check how some. much of this technique would could work with uh, getting in line with a diskless boot. Mm. How much could you do? Where because the server tells it so much of what it needs to know when it's booting. Right. If yeah, you it's kind of like Pixie. That with your stuff. Oof. Yeah, similar to Pixie, you can tell it to boot insecurely. Like you can tell it to boot over HTTP or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was the more interesting. It would, for me. It wasn't even so much the firmware part of it, which is like, oh, like you can fool the checksum, and they talked about that. The interesting information was like all the details on Zoom's zero touch provisioning and how it works. I was mm -hmm. like, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, then, I didn't even know you could get like Zoom phones, or I guess it's, the, <coughs> it's a phone, but it supports Zoom's communication protocol, which also includes its provisioning protocol. Which, like, if I was going to have a VoIP phone, I mean, VoIP is one thing, but like Zoom's communication protocols are really good, as we know. Like audio and video over Zoom is pretty, mm -hmm. pretty amazing. So to just tie yeah. that into someone's desk phone because, and people will be like, well, why do you need a, I remember working, I think it was for Tenable back in the day and even previous jobs before that. The most amazing thing was if I could have a physical phone that was connected via VoIP, you know, over the VPN, people could call my extension as if I was in the office at my desk. Yeah. So we all mm -hmm. had a way to communicate by extension that was only internal. To, and we could get external calls from it too. We had external yeah. phone numbers. And it would basically ring your your phone, which looking back on it, like we all had cell phones back then at this time too. <laughs> right. So that was kind of, it was kind of in that weird time when we were still kind of tied to traditional telephony kind of things. But like, yep. It was kind of silly when I look back on it because we very quickly transitioned to like everyone just has a cell phone and that's yeah. the number. Yeah, like like my business cards, yeah. my business cards for the last ten years have had my personal cell phone on it. Right, but like even, when did I work? I left Tenable in in what twenty fifteen. So yeah. sometime between oh seven and fifteen, like I had a phone and I had an extension, and on my business card was Tenable's number with my extension, extension, and it was a void. <laughs> that was still a thing. Yeah. Uh, back then, but I think today. 
the use case is largely uh, you're in some kind of support role mm. for the organization yep. and you take calls on that. You don't want to be taking support calls on your cell phone, right? Like right, you don't, no. want, right. You like, don't want to call up some organization for support or whatever and, and route to someone's cell. I mean, maybe yep. maybe that does exist. Maybe they do some kind of call routing where it goes to someone's cell phone, but usually there's a, a soft phone yep. or in this case, mm -hmm. like a physical phone that when you're on call during your hours, that's where you're right. And, and again, right. COVID changed a lot of this and we still do yeah. this stuff. Like my wife called our uh, medical insurance company today and the agent that she got, she said, I could tell she was working from home because I could hear her kids talking in the background. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, but she has a probably well, a VoIP phone, phone of some yep. kind. Yeah. And it probably didn't go to her cell phone. Right. Right. It went yep. to a, a company controlled phone. Yep. Right. Over well, Zoom. I remember when we when VoIP was first starting to appear and the what they called uh, single number reach or anywhere reach whatever uh, started coming out and in fact I still use it today my my work number is no longer associated with a physical VoIP phone it just goes to the soft phone but it also rings my work cell phone right and in fact if i make a call from that to a work number they think i'm calling from my extension right. or i can use the voip app on it yeah but then i don't give anybody my mobile number it just i give them one number and they can reach me dude i, I it's funny you say that lee i tested that what also makes me think of this is in early 2000s mm -hmm. i think it was at the lot it was like yeah year 2000 or 2001 we like beta tested this program because back in that time you went to a debt you had a desk you went to in a corporation and you had a phone and that was your extension mm -hmm. and they tested it with the network and security teams because oftentimes we were as you have ever worked in a network group right you were at another building you were in a in server a closet, closet. Yep. like you weren't at, sometimes you weren't at your desk because you were doing your job but it revolved around you being in another part of the building and so they gave yeah. you a cell phone, and when someone called your desk extension, that phone rang as well. Yeah, and that was like the coolest thing. I was like, "Oh my oh, god! Yeah. Oh my god! They can find me anywhere! Oh my god! They can find me anywhere! They can ring me anywhere! Like you ring my extension, and my my you know work issued cell phone rings wherever I am. I'm like that's really awesome. cool. But well, I could. They actually turned off the program because it was so expensive back in the day. <laughs> well, because to think about it, twenty plus years ago. It was it was expensive. It was yeah, expensive. Cell phone it was, was expensive. It was expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Now and today, now we, basically, you have the same we thing. Had the cell phone guys that had uh, had 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 cell phones with two lines on them—a work line and a personal line. Right. Good lord. And that was unusual. Yep. Oh well, those are the days. We're old those parts, are... aren't we? That's it. Yes, now it's all void. This Zoom article is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, uh, uh, arguably. Uh, Paul, you you put the 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 link to quote the advisory, um, which is a SYSS advisory. It's not even a uh, yeah. you know a CVE or anything of the like. But yeah, that advisory was. I'm gonna say it, it's crap. Mm. Um, that you have to go to the detailed plot blog post to get the details like that right. shit should be in an advisory come on guys we've been doing advisories yeah it was kind of weird a long like, time they, they did issue a, like a, a pgp signed uh advisory like you would see on uh your full disclosure list or whatever right yep. it kind of reads in that plain text kind of kind of format so yeah so 
I had a. Did you guys catch my story number story number two about the uh, Chrome extension change? No. So, Chrome is got is going to be proactively active noting users when an extension they're installed is no longer on the web store. Specifically, when it's been unpublished, it's been taken down for a violation of policy or marked as malware. And I, for some, I and a lot of people thought that was already there, but it yeah, wasn't. Yeah, I was. I'm hmm. kind of shocked it wasn't already there, Lee. Didn't you say that? So it's 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 in in the in certain versions of 116. It's there. You can see it under the settings, but it's going to be under uh, the settings privacy, and it'll tell you. It'll have a little alert. This you know blah plop blah plugin is 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 now you know no longer cool. Uh, I just thought that was really neat. And I think it's going to be out in September if my memory serves. I, I was just trying to keep this short. But I thought definitely if it's if it's not on be by default, I'm freaking turning this on. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've greatly pared back my... I never was a big fan of a lot of extensions in add-ons and no, browsers, right? And I'm very selective and I've really pared it back and added some that really just provide a security so like i run uBlock origin now on all yeah. my browser instances in chrome in addition to like another ad blocker kind of thing because it's mm -hmm. just like so much shenanigans dangerous shenanigans yes. on the web and i noticed that when i was reading all my feeds uh for the show that and i think i mentioned this last week too like legitimate websites were i mean we used to call it drive-by downloads, right? It was like a big, it was all right, the rage. Right. That stuff still happens absolutely yeah. today. Uh, and I use extensions to to, to do that, to, right. to prevent that and shit. Like like you, I minimize the extensions, uBlock being one of the ones I happen mm. to like. Um, but I'm not out there keeping an eye on if if, if suddenly uBlock goes so sideways for whatever reason, no, no, no picking on them. I wouldn't know unless I had something like this that says, hey, this has been pulled. Right. Um, and this is kind of like the play store added. Remember, remember before they had the, uh, the, it wasn't play store, but early on in the Android, they didn't have the security where the play store would pull apps that had been banned or otherwise, uh, you know, basically these three conditions applied. Now the play store will do that for you, uh, on your Android, which with, is kind of a, with some I limitations. Like it. I think it's a good model. Yep. I also really, I like post light reader as an extension. Mm -hmm. It takes a, a a website that has all the crap, like you uh -huh. know the, all the ads, mm -hmm. the, the bar, and the, the ads, and the the whole thing. And you click post light reader, and all that stuff goes away. And it's a, basically you read the article like a PDF. That's a game changer. Oh, huh? Very game cool. changer for me. I mean, most of the ads go away. Um, but yeah. all of the and it formats it in like a nice readable format because some articles I read I'm just like the formatting is just like wonky and I'm like I just want to read it as an article and I click the thing and I can read it as an article I don't know if it has That's any security not. benefit you know to doing that but it certainly gets rid of a whole bunch of crap uh, in yeah. my opinion crap on the, on the website so <clears throat> see and I thought um, and I of course I'm not remembering what it is like I thought chrome had one of those types of things built, oh, built in. in like it was like oh, is there a reader there was, like there was reader a reader mode. mode and i don't see it right now but that doesn't mean anything oh yeah there what 
how did you do that in Chrome anyway? But I, I mean, yeah, I know because yeah, yeah. I, I know I can do it in uh, uh, Safari on my iPhone. There is a reader Be- mode. Yeah, because you're right. if you have an article in Wired that you don't have the subscription for, and it pops up with that crap, and you do the reader mode. As, as soon as the lo- website loads, you go into reader mode, and it, yep. you get the whole thing until they fix <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, I'm not seeing like reader mode. However, in in but Chrome, maybe it's right? Just me yeah. in Chrome anymore, but uh, I know I was using that. Oh, people are yelling at this in Discord right now. I'm sure. Yeah. Well. Well, well you know, and moving on to my number six about LinkedIn. Did you know they're doing a bunch of LinkedIn account hijacking? Because apparently, most people haven't turned on two factor on their LinkedIn accounts. Oh. But what they do is they take over somebody's account, they change the recovery email and the password, and then they can never re- do the account recovery because the recovery codes don't go to them anymore. Mm-hmm. And that can actually, well, and then they then they want to then they'll do like a ransomware, pay me X dollars to get your account back. Um, uh, I was going to say, what's the motivation for stealing someone's LinkedIn account? Yeah, well, yeah, that and it's then ransom. permanent lead them. I mean, some folks LinkedIn's really important to their per, pub, their persona. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so, I highly recommend an Authenticator app, at least, as a yeah. second factor on all your stuff. Yeah, don't pick the SMS app option. Yeah, and, and re- go back and remove option. it. And go back and remove it, too. And a yep. lot of, I've still got some cleanup to do on some of my accounts where, yes, I authenticate, and then I use an Authenticator app, but also there's, like, multiple methods for Mm-hmm. Other factors, and yep. you, you got to do some hygiene there. You got to have some hy- multi-factor hygiene, is the thing. Right. Oh God. I was talking to a, a I'm not talking. I went to a talk on uh, how to, you know, really secure yourself. And this guy had a model where he had a root account, which was the only one that had his verification phone numbers, and they were all virtual. None of them were mm. tied to physical SIMs. And then he had his personas underneath it. So he had his private persona, his public persona. And, you know, other fake ones, and he would use them. He had a different use case for each one. Um, But, like, when it came to account validation, those went only to that root set of numbers. Even though the other personas had phone numbers, they were never used for validation of any kind. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But Michael Bazell talks very hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of, it depends on how much work you want to put into it. Michael Bazell does a great job Mm -hmm. of, describing in his books and training classes and podcasts um like his good friend of mine he's a great guy has great advice he's also very forthcoming with like this might not be for you like he's like yeah here's what i do here's kind of what i recommend (laughs) he's like but you know this might not be like this is a lot of work Work. this is a lot of like extra steps and he's like it's all about what you're willing to put into it to have that right. security in, in privacy. Uh, and a lot of what I'm, he does I'm, is for is for privacy reasons. But he talks about, speaking of your example, Lee, he talks about creating, I forget which VoIP provider he's using, but he uses VoIP providers to create different phone. I think the last time he was on the show, he was talking about it. Yep. Uh, and it gets pretty complex. You need to yeah. like set it all up and have certain numbers for different for different things like the, yeah. You know, when you go do a purchase at a store and they're like, what's your phone number? Like he has phone numbers for that kind of thing. I've always like wanted yeah. to get to that level, but man, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. It's a in ton of too. work. Yeah. Yeah. This, this guy, same thing. Cause he was securing himself, his wife and his family. Um, his wife had just gotten a show on the food network that. Oh yes. Featured her family and her restaurant. Oh, and he had just had a, 
a brush with a potential identity, uh, not not identity theft, but release of his information. But he was right in there where this part is really hard and it takes a lot of discipline. Yep. Um, and so I was. it was cool to have the frank feedback in there because we've all thought of it, right? And we've yeah. always thought, oh, we could do that. But, you know, that while this part's a pain in the ass, that part you don't always think through when you're sitting there pontificating. I mean, yeah, um, you could have different emails, phone numbers, and credit cards for, for everything when it's all just a matter yeah. of how much work you want to put into all of it. Yep. Yeah. He bought a car anonymously, as it were. Yeah. And he's got license plates that don't come back to his real persona. Yes. You can you can make purchases and register things like homes and vehicles under yep. personas and LLCs and, and the whole thing, too. Yeah. So it's all about yeah. how much you want to put into it. But it's hard once you've done it the, yeah. I'll say, normal way. <laughs> <laughs> to then backtrack right. to the more secure and private way, uh, right? As, as that's a lot more work. But if this, you kind of pick a point in time, you you can do all that stuff. It's going to be a lot more work. Yep. Uh, to do it that way, but you can. Yeah. You know what? I got a crazy idea. We should have one of these guys on the show. Yeah, we should have Michael. This. We should have Michael back on the show to talk about that. Yeah, we yeah, haven't talked I mean, about like those those. I call it crazy security and privacy kind of things, but it's not. Tyler, it's not. It's not crazy. Tyler's got to be on that show too. Yes. Well, okay. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I mean, so, you know, I have, uh, you know, I talked to Tyler. It's been, a, I don't talk to Tyler as much as I used to when I worked with him. And when I talked to Tyler and he'd be saying, oh yeah, I'm doing this and this and this. And I'm like, God, it's got to be exhausting to be that exhausting. paranoid. It's exhausting. Like, yep. Yeah. 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 But we all need a Tyler in our life for perspective because he do. thinks about things that we don't even consider. Well, yeah, because he sees the other side of it too, right? Yep, totally. Mm. Which makes you more paranoid. It's this vicious cycle we're all in. All righty, what do you say we wrap things up? I think Absolutely. it's good idea. Thank you, everyone, for listening and watching this edition of Paul Security Weekly. Larry, take us out. Over and out of here. <laughs>